Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. I'm happy to be joined by Jeremy Raper this week. Thank you very much for stopping by. We got some interesting things to cover. Jeremy has a a perspective. It's global and it's credit-focused, and I really like reading what he writes. Part of the reason may be because my background's in credit, and credit-focused guys have a soft spot in my heart. So, (laughs) as always, none of this is investment advice. This is not financial advice. Get your own advisor. This is entertainment only, and nothing we discuss is an invitation or solicitation to buy or sell a security. But first, I'm just going to let you in on the conversation that we were having before because we said, screw it, let's just run this thing. So, hell yeah. (laughs) Jeremy and I were talking about a bit of an issue that I'm going through right now because being public about some of the stuff that I'm public about especially some of my family stuff, is causing, I would say, like strife, for lack of a better term. And part of the issue, I think, is that, you know, I mean specifically with my father, that he's, I think that one thing that I have not conveyed enough in this podcast is, like, he and I went through a period of our life that was tough. The outcome of that has been incredible. And I have more respect for that guy than I ever had growing up and seeing how he picked himself up after, you know, an event that was devastating to him and like how he has put himself back together. And like he he's done a ton for society since and he's happy and he's like he's kind of what I always wanted for my dad. Mm. And now he is that person. But it's tough because I don't know how to do a show like this and not be authentic about who I am and what I've gone through. Because I think if I don't, if I'm not me, then why the hell would anybody listen? Right. So that's the background of what we were talking about. And We'll get to the credit stuff shortly, but y'all get to drop in on a heavy conversation first. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the Bill Brewster experience. Welcome aboard. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, Bill, yeah, well, thanks. I'm really happy to be here. Look, I think we talked offline before, but um, I've been a big fan of yours for, for quite a while, and it's really exciting to see what you're building with the pod. And I mean, look, I've consumed basically every episode you've put up since you started doing it. I think you really carved out a nice niche for yourself. And I'm really glad to be a part of it, as I said, and I think it has a, has a bright future. I was just saying that there's a huge generational divide in how people view the airing of their personal problems, for want of a better word, or their personal business. And look, you and I are of a certain generation and your fa- our parents are of a certain generation and they hew to the kind of strong, silent type, the Cary Grant mold, where private business stays private, for want of a better word, family business stays private. And and your and perhaps my perspective as well is more that, look, there's a happy ending to this story that should be celebrated, not hidden. And secondly, and probably more importantly, I think I think you would agree is that there are lessons and, and optimistic notes from that resolution for a ton of other people who could benefit from hearing about it. And I think that's one of the main reasons you started doing the podcast maybe in a different, you know, a different focus, the investment world. But I think a big part of the reason why you've resonated so far is that genuine nature of what you're bringing to the table. And so, look, I'm really hopeful there's a way you can reconcile it with your with your family as well so that you can continue doing the podcast in the way you want to do it because I think that's really key to maintaining that connection with your audience. Yeah, I'm sure you'll figure it out. It's still early yeah, days, I mean, right? I think- 
Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And I th- I think part of the issue, too, is, like, I talk about the side of my family that sort of is why I can pursue, right? So I had two sides of my family that were successful back in the day. I The Brewster side ran, like, a huge construction company, huge. Okay. And I think they just grew, like, way too fast. At, at the very end, I think what happened is you know they just got into too many too many projects and then things started to fall apart a little bit but they built a lot of new jersey mm-hmm. and you know i think that he feels like i sort of slight that person that that built that business and and some of it's because you know i didn't know that guy and that was that was my dad's hero mm-hmm. and like i i'm proud of that i don't think it's like a family of degenerates and i guess sometimes when you talk about or i do right like the the bad things that happened I just think maybe I've underemphasized a lot of the great things. So going forward, I'm going to try to, in an authentic way, you know, if the if the time is right to bring them up. But it's been tough, man. Since yeah, man. since that Jim O'Shaughnessy podcast dropped, and and then Adam Robinson was the same, you know, the same week, and that was like mm-hmm. Thursday was was sort of like a, a little bit of a high, right? And then it had some blowback associated with it. And then that was, was a bit of a tough weekend. And then I was just telling you, I played tennis with a guy that died and was brought back to life. So I've been like thinking about all kinds of existential things, uh, right before we got ready to record. So this should be great. It puts everything in perspective. When I say you should buy this bond at 5% yield because it's going to 4%, it really puts things right. That's right. It went to be right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, man, I really, really like, how you look at the world. I have a ton of questions Thanks. for you, how you can look across the globe and get comfortable. For instance, yeah. and again, folks, this is not financial advice, but you have that, like a Polish trash company that I think is a really interesting thesis. No, awesome. Thanks. I happen to come from, I mean, my wife is Polish. My in-laws are Polish. They're like first generation. I've been to Poland. Oh, wow. I guess only once. No, it was twice. Um, I have like massive affinity for Poland and, and Polish people, but I don't know how the hell you read a 10 K like that or whatever it is they're filing, right? A 20 F or whatever. Well, look, I, so how do you I, get comfortable I, I with actually, that? Actually, I minded in ancient Polish literature at school so I can kind of read all the Did Polish classics. Hell no, man. I don't believe you. <laughs> no way. No way. <laughs> no, no, no. Look, it's, it's a long story. I mean, the, <laughs> No offense to I like anyone. That, that was a good joke. <laughs> well done, sir. <laughs> Look, I mean, come on. That would be great if I had, but unfortunately, I haven't read anything in Polish, and I never will. You would be officially the most interesting man in the world, living in Tokyo with your accent and a minor or a major in, in ancient Polish literature. I, I would be like, oh my goodness, this dude is wild. Yeah, well, good good thing it's, it's that, that's why the most interesting man in the world only exists on a commercial, because no one actually reads ancient <laughs> Polish and lives in Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> but no, look, I mean, the, I guess the real question is not how I came to this particular company or this particular market, because I mean, look, I have a Polish investment, I'm happy to go into it. But I've invested, you know, all over the place. And I guess the real, the nexus of your, not the nexus, but the, the core of your question is why am I comfortable, I guess, going all over the yeah. world. And so, I mean, I guess obviously a big part of it is my particular story or background, right? So I've been very fortunate. I lived in Australia till I was 18, but I haven't lived there since I was 18. And and I'm 36 now. So I've spent the better part of half my life living all over the place. So, you know, I went to school in the US. I lived in Tokyo. I live in Tokyo now. I lived in New York. I lived in Singapore and lived in London. So, 
you know, I, wow. I've been. Why so many places? Well, for money and for love. That's about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I. Okay. I, I went... So where'd money take you? <laughs> well, look, okay. So it started at the beginning. So I'm, you know, grew up in Sydney, lived until I was 18, graduated high school in Sydney, then went to college in the US. That was because my brother went to college in the US. And if, if my brother could demonstrate he can go to an American university, obviously I have to prove that as well, right? <laughs> so there's no reason I would have gone to study in the US unless my brother made me do it because we had a hugely competitive relationship. So he went, so I had to go. And obviously he had a great time and it really opened up his world. And because I went to school in the US, so the calendar is different in Australia. So you graduate high school at the end of the year because that's when summer is, right? So summer is December, January in, in Australia. Yeah. And then you start university the next year in January or February. So because I knew I was going to the US, I had until next fall, so it's next September, to do something. And, and in that period of time, I happened to go to Japan because I'd studied Japanese a little bit in high school and I was quite interested in Japanese. And I had that window of time. So I went and lived with a Japanese family like two hours outside of Tokyo and just learned really good Japanese and had an amazing experience. And that, wow, dude, that's awesome. Yeah, I was super fortunate. And that whole, I mean, look, talk about getting existential and like how life is kind of crazy sometimes. The, the whole reason I even started studying Japanese because my dad happened to meet a Japanese teacher at a doctor's waiting room when he was just going to the doctor for a checkup, you know, a long, long time ago. And he happened to say, oh, I want my son to learn Japanese just because he really liked this Japanese lady that he met. And I started learning Japanese. If I'd never done that, I never would wow. have moved to Japan. I never would have met my wife. I never, you know, so it's just kind of avalanche of consequences from small little things. But yes, yeah, so, I got to back you up real quick. Yeah, sure, sure. Growing up in Australia, so I I backpacked through Australia oh, when I was you know it better than me then twenty two. You know it better than me. Well, I was going to ask you. So, did like when you grow up there, do you back like is it because because culturally there's a lot of at least tourism, right? Yes. And backpackers, did you do that when you were younger, or is that not really what locals do? Locals, okay. So, you know how you have spring break in the U.S. and you go down to Cabo and get wasted. Yes. So the Aussie equivalent of that is something called schoolies. Schoolies. So in Australia, okay. you, you end every word with an IE sound basically to make it short. And it's, it stands for like school leavers. So when okay. you're leaving high school, in, before you go to university, you go up to the Gold Coast, which is, you know, or Byron Bay or whatever. You go up to the, the Mexico equivalent. Oh, Byron Bay is sick. And you basically get wasted and smoke as much weed as possible for like, you know, a week. Yeah, or you two. go to Nimbin, get you, your little get yeah. your bag, and then you go back to Byron Bay. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so that's that's the extent of local tourism, I think, for most huh. I mean, look, I am I'm generalizing. This is for most young Australians. Obviously I went, you know, on some trips and went around the country, but I didn't really, you know, go bush, so to speak, or do a huge amount of exploring of my own country. As I was growing up, I went to New Zealand a few times. I, you know, I went up and down the coast of my state, New South Wales, but I didn't really have a strong connection with the land, unfortunately, or or you know, a pastoral connection. So, like, you're you're obviously buddies with Toby, Toby Carlisle. Look, he, he's from a very different part of Australia. So, he, he, I think he grew up on a farm. Yes, he is definitely not from Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so he you know he has a very kind of different perspective on on what it you know what it means to kind of grow up in the bush and he's i think he's from a working farm so you know a very different kind of pastoral education i grew up in sydney so essentially the suburbs of chicago probably not that dissimilar to well the diversity aside being honest the suburbs of a, of a major american city not that dissimilar to growing up in sydney frankly 
Did uh, you go to Manly Beach a lot? Dude, I, I grew up 10 minutes from Manly. So I went to Manly all the time. Did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you a big surfer? No, no. I was a big I was a big swimmer. So I was a very serious swimmer. My one claim to fame is I once raced against Ian Thorpe in a competitive race. Wow. So, I mean, I know, that's a pretty good claim to fame. Yeah, I know that doesn't sound like, I mean, me and Thorpe. So for anyone who, who's not that familiar, Ian Thorpe won gold medals at the Olympics when he was 15. And I raced in the same pool as him when he was 13 because we were in the same grade. Wow. So when I was 13, 14, I was a pretty high level swimmer for my state. I mean, so I, I never made like the nationals competitions or anything like that, but I've managed to make. The, yeah, but uh, Australians are legit at swimming. I mean, if you were high level in your state, you were good. Well, I was high level in my state for my age. So, I, you know, yeah. I was still many, many levels below the Thorpe level, which is kind of the international superstar level or the, even the representing Australia level. I could never come close to that. But yeah, I was a, I was a very good school level swimmer and I could have swum at, at college in the US, but I mean, 12 times a week in freezing weather is not my thing. But um, yeah, that was yeah. my main my main sport was swimming growing up. I was friends with a lot of the swimmers at Auburn because my buddy swam. Because you uh, like big shoulders, right? That's what I heard. Dude, those guys <laughs> are monsters. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what was really emasculating is when they would get out of the pool and like all of the ones that had been to the Olympics had the tattoo like either oh, on their okay. back or their arm or whatever. And they walk by me and I'd just be like, if we were in a bar together, there's a hundred percent chance you get the chicks and I don't. That's how it goes, man. Swimmers clean up. Swimmers clean up. But no, it's, it's <laughs> funny because when I went to college, like all my roommates were, were sports players, just coincidentally. So I had one, one roommate was on the football team. One roommate was on the lightweight crew. And one roommate was uh, on the water polo team. And, you know, I basically was drinking beer or, you know, partying or whatever. And then two, three years in, the guy on the lightweight crew who's, you know, waking up at 4 a.m. going, doing his crew. And I'd been telling them how good I was at swimming in high school, right? But I hadn't really done anything for a few years. So he's like, dude, you're full of shit. I'm going to kick your ass. I don't care how good you are at swimming. Let's go race right now. Now, if it's all technique, right? It's all technique. I don't care how fit someone is. I mean, if it's over 50 mm. yards, of course, it might be pure speed. But he was like, dude, I'm going to race you. Let's race 200 meters, 400 meters. You name the distance. And I just looked at him. You know, I was super out of shape by then just drinking beer. And I said, like, you name the distance. You name the stakes. I'm going to take all your money. <laughs> and so he jumped in. Within half a lap, I was ahead of him. And then, I mean, I, I absolutely crushed him. Now, by the way, when I finally got out of the pool after a kilometer or whatever it was, I could barely breathe because I was so out of shape, but he finished 10 minutes after me. So it's, it's just one of those yeah. things. It's like, you know, if, if I had been in peak fitness and I'd said to him, dude, I'm going to, he, you know, and I'd said, let's go have a rowing race. I wouldn't have the temerity to think I could crush him. I mean, it's all technique, right? It's just a lifetime yeah. of perfecting the strokes, you know, how to enter and exit the water with your oar, whatever. So it's it's just like anything. These are, these are skills that you can't just. It's not all pure fitness. It's it's a lot of it is is technique. But yeah, man. I, I mean, sorry, I, I cut you off. You were, you were backpacking around Australia. No, no. Yeah. Oh well, hang on. We'll get back to my backpacking and my nibbin <laughs> stuff. But okay. Okay. For now, the thing that amazes me about swimming is how mentally strong you have to be. Because it's just you, right? I mean, like, there's nobody else. I guess you can hear when people are screaming outside the water, you know, when they say, like, pull, pull, I guess if you're, like, a breaststroker. But if you got your head down and you're in freestyle or whatever, it's just kind of you and the guy next to you, right? Totally. It's just like value investing. It either takes or it doesn't, right? If you have the mentality yeah. where you can look at a black line on the bottom of the pool and, you know, it, it's almost like a form of meditation. So, so when I was growing up and swimming competitively, 
I used to always be frustrated with how boring it was or whatever, you know, being in the pool for two hours, no outside stimulus. These days, it's the complete opposite. It's like a sanctuary. Every time I go mm. swimming, it's, it's purely for relaxation and fitness. It's, it's the only time during the day where I'm not connected, where I'm not constantly beset by pinging market prices or phones or stimulus of some form. So for now, it's almost like a form of meditation where I can dive in the pool. Literally, the only sound I hear is my own breathing or the swishing of the water in my ears. And there's, there's no distraction. And so then you can actually get some real thinking done. And oftentimes, I now go mm. to this local pool just, you know, 20 minutes from my house and go swimming and just up and down, up and down. You know, I switch up the strokes or whatever. But next thing you know, I look up and it's been an hour and a half. And I didn't even realize I was just, you know, going through thinking things in my mind or whatever. And so I'm very fortunate to have had that kind of training, for want of a better word, or at least that that reaction to this to the activity, because a lot of people... You know, now, now I see a lot of people in the pool, they go swimming and they have those special those special goggles with the headphone attached so they can listen to music in the pool. And that, yeah. is, that is something else. I could never do that, like a teeny music in your ear while you're underwater. That's the complete opposite of what swimming means to me now. It's, it's really a form of escape, a form of uh, small mental relaxation crafted within mm. the day. So, I mean, yeah, but again, it, it's... It's a very personal thing. Like a lot of people, you know, sport, it's a very individual sport. And for them, sport is a team thing or a group thing. And they want that interaction with others. So, yeah, on, in that regard, the only team interaction you really get is during the competitions when you're, you know, you're swimming relays or you're, you know, cheering on your teammates. But it's a pretty isolated individual sport, which makes it perfect for later in life, though. Yeah. And like you said, for value investing, especially right now, because it's not exactly a style of investment that has a whole lot of cheerleaders. Yes. And, and funnily enough, for, for people like you and myself who are look working for ourselves and working overwhelmingly by ourselves, there is some interaction, what with Twitter, et cetera. But for much of the day, we are self-reliant and dependent upon our own output to to kind of bring home the bacon, right? So yeah, it's it's kind of similar in that way as well. That's cool. I, I mean, I was a golfer and it's, yeah. I, I mean, you could talk to people, but you're out there alone, right? I mean, it's all about calming your, your brain down. I should probably get out and walk more and just like unplug from everything. Lately, I, I when I walk, I try to have like an audio book in and then I don't do either thing well, which is probably not a very good idea. So see, I have you to blame because when I'm idea. walking now, I'm listening to a podcast. So when I really should be, oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate it. Man. But I keep wanting to say, dude, that guy got that wrong. He's so wrong. I was thinking about that the other yeah. day about something. But I guess, look, I mean, look, we all we all have these kind of reactions. So that's the beauty of it, right? Yeah, and I think, I guess it's a hard thing about being on like a, confer a conversational podcast platform. And I, I guess really, I, I don't know how the other, other ones run, but it's tough because like I don't co-sign everything that everybody's saying, right? I mean, it, it's sort of, you know, what people say, I kind of allow them to go and for sure. people can judge for themselves whether or not the person knows their shit and do their own, you know, due diligence as to whether or not they do. Sometimes it's a little bit tough. And, and a lot of the times, like, I don't really know, you know, I'm just trying to figure it out too. Totally. But Bill, I was speaking about you. I was thinking you're wrong all the time. Oh, that too. <laughs> No, that's fair. That's totally fair. <laughs> then you would be accurate. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding, dude. I'm just kidding around. But no. No, that's why I try not to talk too much, man. Like, I, what am I going to say to to my guests? Like, this guest list is crazy, dude. 
when I started this I guess, thing, yeah, I hoped I was like maybe I can put down like I don't know seven good episodes. I knew I had a killer killer opening guest list, and what I didn't expect was like. I think I was fortunate that Mike and Dan and Toby sort of like opened it yeah. right and like really set the tone in the right way. And now it's just on me to not fuck it up. Dude, I think, look, don't undersell yourself too much, right? The reason it pops like it does is there's a real skill to being able to bring out the best in people, right? We know that. That's well demonstrated through through the history of, you know, Oprah's and uh, Johnny Carson's, right? So I think there's a real talent to letting people shine, even if they are, you know, going to shine on their own. and. So you definitely have that in spades. But yeah, man, like I really like the pod with Mike, Mike Mitchell. Like I, just while you bring him up, yeah. like I I mean, look, he has a somewhat similar investing philosophy to me, maybe slightly more rigorous is the wrong word. But I mean, his required return threshold is a lot lower than mine. I'm trying to, I'm trying to hit a few more singles through the field. It seems like he's much more willing to let his bat line his shoulder. But from a mentality and a, an investment philosophy perspective, I like a ton of what he does. His risk management, Woo, we can talk about that, but <laughs> the, the only reason I said it is that I was having a little yeah, chat with I mean, him on, he would... on Twitter the other day, and I was like, bro, you have 50% of your net worth in this dodgy Canadian microcap that owns a lumber mill that you're not even sure it can work. Like, okay. I mean, like, hey, he made a shitload yeah. of money on well, this. So who am I? But... To, be, I, to be fair, uh, his cost basis is much lower than the than the current price, and I would argue that... I mean, I, I talk to him a lot, so I'll come to his defense on this. I would not recommend anybody, unless they really know their shit, follows his current portfolio allocation as a model of what they should be doing. Totally. I do think he underplays the stuff that he knows as to why his weights are the way they are. You know, right, so. Right. We'll see how it all works out. And I think he's looking forward to that too. Oh, look, I'm a huge fan. This is not a shot at him at all. I mean, it's just, yeah. and, and, I, and I know where he got into it. So I know he's let it run massively. But I was just wondering, like, it's a very difficult thing where you get in and it's, you know, 10% of your money, whatever. Now it's 45, 50% of your money, whatever it happens to be. And I mean, this is an illiquid microcap security, right? This is very difficult to get your money out. So I was trying to quiz him a little bit on how he thought about that process. And he was like, long and strong, like the asset, like the managers. <laughs> and I was like, and he's like, oh, good. I'm glad you do because you're along for the ride, buddy. And that's great. Like you said, he's he knows a lot more about the asset. Well, if you ever want to have a legit a legit phone call with him, I can broker that because uh, he's he's much more nuanced when I talk to him. No, no. I mean, look, it's obviously it's Twitter. It's hilarious. Right? It's Twitter. So it's going to yeah. be it's going to be short and snappy. And I, I mean, it's on the topic because, like, I think this is something you and I probably encounter a lot. The way we respond and talk about things on Twitter, I can be accused, for example, of being too short or too too blunt or too brusque. But, I mean, it is the nature of the format, right? You, you I mean, you must have a yeah. thousand times more increase than me. But when was the last time? I have tons of direct messages I can't get to. And I'm just another guy, right? It must be for anyone with real profile out there. It must be incredibly difficult to maintain and respond courteously and promptly to all the people's inquiries. And so, you know, when he gives me a, a quick snappy answer that I think is, oh, well, dude, you know, that's way too risky. Obviously, there's so many more levels. I'm seeing not even the tip of the iceberg, right? So 
Yeah. Yeah. It's part and parcel of the format. And I think it's worth remembering for not just us, for me, but for everyone, right? When you're interacting with someone on Twitter, there's probably a huge amount behind that, that they just either don't have the time or the format doesn't allow them to fully explain. Yeah. And I think, you know, I guess that the thing that gets, I don't have it as much because I'm pretty grateful that I didn't have the Twitter account that I have right now when I was pitching Curate. Right. Because I think people would have shit all over me constantly. And I think, look, Mike is taking some bets that are heavily skewed against where the general population of investors on Twitter tend to talk about and the assets they prefer. Absolutely. So I suspect his inbounds to certain things are not as kind as maybe they could be. So it, it's it's possible that maybe you caught him at, at a long oh, no, no, and no. strong reaction. No, 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 no. By the way, no, no. He was totally courteous. He was totally courteous. Okay. Um, <laughs> I guess it, it does touch on an interesting point though, right? Because for us deep, quote unquote, deep value guys, because what Mike basically did for, I mean, Mike is getting so much free marketing from this podcast. This is great. But um, what, what he basically did was he found this super cheap, massively mispriced option on a Canadian, I think it was a busted Canadian SPAC equivalent, right? It was a pool of cash or something run by some smart guys that didn't have an asset. He bought it at a big discount to the, or solid discount to the cash that it had. And then they turned it into this lumber mill, okay? And when they turned it into the lumber mill, I guess two things happened. One, lumber prices were a lot lower. So lumber prices doubled or more since he, since he put it on. And what else happened? They rebranded. I think they maybe raised the, the insiders raised a bunch of capital alongside. So you maybe got a little bit more liquidity, got a bit more profile, and they're going to try and turn it into like a, a green asset play or something. The issue I have is no, not issues, issues, the wrong word, but the difficulty that we have is when you get into something that's deeply, and this happens a lot in Japan, actually, you get into something and it's trading at like a 70, 80% discount to fair value. Then one or two things happen. Part of that may have been your thesis. Part of it may have been luck, right? I'm, I'm pretty sure he didn't underwrite the lumber price doubling in the last three, four months, right? No one did, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so, no doubt. so this is kind of like found value, right? So, how do you negotiate what's the right price when lumber has gone from 400 to 900? Okay. You may be bullish on housing, you may be bullish on the cycle, whatever, but new, new lumber supply is going to come online. Price is going to correct. If that happens, the value of the mill is going to go down. Even if you you know the discount's still 60 percent, maybe the discount could go back out to seventy percent or whatever, right? And in absolute terms, that's a that's a big markdown for a large portion of your assets. Yeah, I mean these are the these are the kind of debates we always have in, in deep value land where it's not entirely clear. There's a hard catalyst to get your money out. Now, in Mike's particular case, I think there is that hard catalyst, right? So so one of the reasons yeah, why I think it might be a couple. Exactly, he's thinking. Look, they're either going to sell it to someone else, right? or they're going to bolt on another asset and it's going to get momentum. Whereas in Japan, that's often not the case. You're trading 70% yes. discount to 40% discount. So you have to be a bit more active in trying to get in and out because Mr. Watanabe is not about to go and give up his golf membership and return all the capital or, or whatever it is, right? Whereas I think it might be slightly yeah. different in, in his case. But I mean, these are the kinds of, look, it's a champagne problem. It's a champagne problem, but yeah, it really affects your Dude, IRR, the other right? thing. Yeah, and the other thing with Mike is, like, Mike knows Kyle for real. Mm. So, you know, it, it, we can debate whether or not, like, that's a, you know, do you get endowment bias or whatever, but, like, Mike knows the person he's betting on. So right. for one of the things that worries me about having, like, a show like this or, or a Twitter account as big as it's gotten, I'm not 
some hedge fund guru. Like I'm a dude that's trying to make it doing things I understand. Right. I own Transdime right now. I don't understand how people are buying it. I understand that people tell me why they're buying it. Like I bought it on a liquidity crisis, basically, right? Like people were worried that there would be a covenant that would spring and yep. they wouldn't make it through COVID. I figured if these guys can't make it through COVID with $4 billion of cash on the balance sheet and uh, and no covenants right now, like we got some bigger problems. So that was my bet. Now I you need a view on a lot of things. And like I'm I'm dealing with the discomfort of holding that. And Mike and I have talked. And one of the things that Mike said to me is I said, dude, I have a couple positions right now that like I've gotten paid for my view mm. and they're quality companies. Mm. And I'm struggling a little bit with the Buffett and Munger sayings of like, we're good at buying. We're not good at selling. Yeah. And if you buy a good company at a good price, sort of let it run and, and see, you know, more often than not, it seems to me that the guys that do that end up with pretty good track records for the right reasons, not like stocks up, bro. Sure. And maybe some of that is where we are. But, you know, like, I mean, buying Disney and COVID, the, is it a little, is it rich now? Like, yeah, it could be. I, there's also a lot more options that that company has. And like, I didn't buy it directly in March. I, I bought, when I, when the Disney Plus numbers came out and it was like 55 million or or subs or whatever, I was like, oh, this is stupid because of the work that I had done on Netflix, which you and I can talk about. But I I kind of realized like how big the out year numbers can get. Yeah. And the thing that I like about Disney is I think it's a better mousetrap. Like, like Netflix, I think there's a legitimate argument to be made that it's a cons like there's so much burn in the ongoing spend that they require that maybe the value that yep. people are projecting will turn out to be illusory. Disney, mm. it's like a freaking mousetrap that you just like keep spinning off characters. And with Disney Plus, you can literally like, test a, character a mouse see trap. How it does literally a mousetrap. That's I have right. To stop you there. Sorry. <laughs> Go on. Yeah. So so it's so it's easier for me to kind of be like, all right, it's rich, and maybe my IRR from here kind of sucks for a couple of years. But the other thing is like, what am I going to do if I sell it? Well, that's that's. And I the guess key, the answer the is question. go, go on, find finish, the next thing. It. Well, that's look. No, I mean, and that's that's what I've been dealing with. That's that's the key, and I think. Look, it was interesting the way you phrased your your view of trans time. You said, "Well, I think what what did you exactly say? You said you don't understand why people are buying it here, right?" Yeah. Which, if yeah. you if you believe to which that, somebody would say, "Well, why do you own it?" Well, that's that's what I was going to say. So, why do you own it? And I guess your response is because I have to then replace it, right? If I sell it, I take tax consequences, and I have to replace it. And so, it sounds like you're finding it difficult to find equivalent opportunities, which is another way of saying why I look overseas, frankly, because yeah, in that kind of quality at a reasonable price bucket, which I guess is what Transdive would fall into. It's extremely difficult in mid or large cap US to find anything that not not isn't not isn't just picked over, not isn't priced to near nosebleed, right? So someone I have no by the way, I have no view on trans time. I know nothing about trans time other than what they basically yeah. do and what I've heard you talk about in the public sphere. But if someone like you who obviously knows it pretty well or very well is arriving at that conclusion, I mean it's a tough game then to make money in trans time stock, right? It's a very tough game. Well what I, what do you do if it's maybe I mean there's 
Go on. I talk to some smarter people than me that know the asset better than me. And maybe part of the problem is that I don't understand how good it is, right? And what I will say is like qualitatively, when you read some of the expert interviews and you talk to people that have owned it, I think there's a very, very high probability that I underweight what that business can do. They just did a billion dollar acquisition. And like, I could be really wrong on what I'm saying. On the other hand, I am really worried that like travel is actually structurally permanently impaired. And I know that people Mm, will say, well, just think about till 2030. And it's like, okay, but there's a lot of things that are going to happen between now and then. And there's a lot of businesses that have changed their behavior and how they operate. And a lot of seat miles are business travel. And a lot are leisure, like no doubt. And maybe I need to go back and work through all that math to really think it through. Mm. But I just think that there's maybe more downside skew than people perceive. I would agree. Look, without taking a view on whether that is correct or not, I would agree that the risk reward of owning a stock like that, given all that you said, is tough. And if there were no tax consequences... Assuming I'm right. Well, assuming you're right and that's your considered conclusion it would sound like you should yeah. sell that stock and look for something else. Now, again, it's not purely about, look, there's another trans time out there or there's 10 other trans, whatever it is. So it depends on your pipeline. It depends on all these other things. But this is the crux of investing in expensive markets, right? That's why Howard Marks says, look, when markets get very expensive, you have to be willing to miss out on the fund. You have to be willing to sit out and accept lower returns on the belief that the optionality on that cash will be worth a lot if or when the correction comes. But what happens if it doesn't come for another three, four, five years? So look, we're all we're all dealing yeah. with that issue in different ways. I mean, I'm by the way, I'm I'm obviously a fan of Buffett and Munger. I'm nowhere near the scholar that you and your compadres are of him. But like one thing I really don't quite understand is this whole idea that you'd never sell anything no matter what. I mean like there's no debating that Apple at 30 times EBIT or whatever it is is a completely different proposition than at 10 times EBIT when he bought it, right? Even if it's yeah. even if it's a better business than it was. Or, and by the way, Apple hasn't grown revenue in years now, right? So it's not really going to grow its way out of it. It might be a cash machine, but if it's just a cash machine, then you're just betting on interest rates, aren't you? The, the spread between well, the free cash and, and that of an interest rate type return. I guess what I would say is what's become more clear is that it's a tax on sort of the digital economy. I, I think that that was underappreciated mm, when you bought fair. it. I that's think fair. to your point, you could say, well, now it's pretty appreciated, Yeah. right? So what are you doing now? I, I agree with you. I think that I think that not enough people think about what he is saying. When he talks, he's talking to a bunch of stakeholders, right? And yeah. he's also so big now. That I mean, if I'm feeling some of this pressure, imagine what Buffett lives with when he talks, right? Like, and and he's got like true novices that are coming in that are looking for advice that have bought the stock simply as a lemming, and like he kind of I think he owes them a duty to give them a reason to stay in the in the stock, and I think a mm. lot of what he says is a narrative to protect the less sophisticated shareholder in his company. I don't think he worries about the hedge fund guys. So I I think he'd probably agree in private. For example, the Coke investment. Yeah. I suspect if that was in like a small partnership, that would not have stayed in his portfolio. Mm. Mm. 
How long, no, I don't how, know that. How, how long do you think it takes Warren to reply to his DMs? I don't think he replies <laughs> to many DMs. But when I wrote him, man, he did turn his I, he turned his response pretty quick. I, I heard, I heard that. That's I, incredible. That's incredible. You got a personal yeah. response. That's amazing. Good on him. Good on I you. I wrote a handwritten note. Yeah, that's. Well, I wrote a handwritten note, and the other thing that I did with it, like I do with this podcast, is I I opened up about some personal stuff. And I said to him, I was like, you know, I I was pretty lost. And then mm. I found you guys. And, like, you guys really helped me answer some life questions that I needed to answer. And I appreciate that. You know, and I think I told him a story that we we could both relate to, and I think he liked all that. So Awesome. That, great, that was man. the secret sauce behind that letter. And And look at you now. So he really set you on your way. Yeah. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. I don't think he would approve of what I'm doing, man. <laughs> I think he'd be like, you need to shut up. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But look, you took the inspiration and it's been a positive force for you and for your life. And now you're you're hopefully paying it forward to, to the broader audience or the broader world. So that's, look, it's great. But yeah, where, where were we? We were talking about you backpacking around Australia. I was talking about Japan a little bit, and then why I looked at global yeah, companies. Yeah, well, did... We're going to get to the, this. <laughs> is going to be a long episode. I hope people don't churn off because they're like these guys are just talking. Because it's going to, it's. I find it very interesting. It's part of the. It's part of the charm. You know, the the, the long, gentle lead in before finally the pearls of wisdom come out at hour three and a half. Right. That's how it works. I think that <laughs> I think pearls of wisdom have actually already come out. And, you know, I guess that what I was going to say about like whether or not he would say that I should talk a little bit less. I do think that there is a part of investment. There's a part of this game that is underappreciated, at least how he played it. And I do think he spent a lot of time building a network totally, and a lot of time like generating idea flow. And that is is not discussed when people talk about Buffett. Like there's Mm. this myth that he sat around and, you know, just read 10 K's. And I I think if you look at like what Andrew Walker is building, I think I'm building something similar, but different. I think Andrew's idea flow is probably a little bit better than mine, given sort of like the nature of what he's doing. But this is so scalable that it really enables like what I think I'm pretty good at is connecting people. And I do think I'm sort of becoming a hub for making connections. And I look forward to it. Like, I, I love this shit. Like, if you want to talk to Mike, I would love to, like, set up a call and be like, you guys can talk. I, sometimes I'd like to tax the conversation by listening. But, um, I'm, man, I'm but, like, I love that stuff. <laughs> Dude, I think. You know, so, yeah. so this this enables that. And, I, and that's where he might say to me, like, you actually are playing a smarter game than than you think I would give you credit for in your head. Totally, totally. Sense? I think I think that's right. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, look, I why do we even put our content out there? Okay, why do we talk about stocks online? Why do we write? Look, why did I start writing about stocks online? There were two main motivations. This is back in like 2014, 2015. One is I wanted to kind of, I wanted to demonstrate some kind of intellectual track record, some kind of intellectual credibility for potentially yes. raising money in the future. So even if I didn't have a track record as an investment manager, as a professional, no one really cares about your PA, right? Let's be honest. I would have something in the public domain, independent of myself, that was timestamped, verifiable from an intellectual perspective. So I couldn't show you the numbers on a page because you don't care about my PA, but you could see here's the thesis, here's what happened, boom, 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 rinse, repeat, over time. Okay, yeah, he's published 50 theses 
of those 30 have worked out, 20 haven't, here's how he approached it over time, boom, boom, boom. That was reason one, credibility. Yeah. Reason two, and this is just as important, if not more important, feedback. The amount of feedback you get, yes. the amount of pushback, criticism. I mean, you mentioned curate. Sure, a lot of that feedback would have been, for want of a better word, negative. But even negative critique pushes you, forces you to clarify, forces you to defend, forces you to be more honest with with your assumptions, right? Yeah. There's never been a better way to, there's never been a better forum to kind of marshal that that feedback than the internet. And I guess Twitter specifically is a perfect forum for it. Like I can put out a tweet thread on some investment that I'm looking at. You know, it might be a semi-formed thesis. It might be a fully formed thesis. And within a week or under a week, really, within a matter of days, I'll have all kinds of matter of pushback, stuff that I thought I knew that I didn't know, stuff that is quite contrary to my conclusion, stuff that might be very supportive that I hadn't come across yet, just because the hive mind is so much smarter than any one of us. So I think you're totally right. One is the, the building of the network. And as a result of that network is the idea flow, but even just pure idea flow aside, it's the ability to stress test your ideas is a huge direct benefit of being in the public kind of discussing things. And yeah, there's a cost to it. There always is. But I think the buff dog would probably agree that there's a there's a big net benefit there. <laughs> I'm only calling him the buff do dog from now on because I like Because I do. Yes, yes. That's a, that's an homage. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's it. a Brewster homage right there. Well, I appreciate it. And I only call him it because, I, I don't know, it's a term of endearment. I, I would only give a friend a nickname. <laughs> and I'd like to think that maybe he'd like me if we actually met each other. So how do you how do you balance getting the feedback versus like, keeping your own view sure i mean look it's i was a history major at college so when i said i studied ancient polish history that was only a slight lie i mean that was only a stretch of the truth i actually did study history and look i think what is investing at its core right basically what you try and do is you look at a, a bunch of different disparate bits of information and you try to assess and pull out the through lines connect various dots and arrive at something close to the truth. What is historical analysis, right? You have sources, various sources about a certain event or series of events, and you have to weigh competing bits of information, right? This guy said this about the past, that guy said that about the past. Well, this guy was a general, so obviously he, you know, he thought that his move was the best, but that guy was a politician, so he thought that he put the general in position to make that move or actually no it was because he had more troops and this guy was one of those troops you know so you basically have all these different threads and you try and parse out over time something close to the truth so i say close to the truth because you know you're never really 100 percent sure well what is investing investing essentially assessing competing bits of information and trying to find the thread through which runs i guess the through line that ties it all together so it's it's not a dissimilar kind of analytical process. And the other part that was great about being a history major was it teaches you to write and teaches you to express yourself clearly, cogently, and coherently. And I think being a good investor and being a good writer, being being able to express yourself clearly, I go hand in hand, hand in glove. Very rare to find a good investor who cannot express himself, good uh, has strong command of the written word. There's a reason why Buffett's letters jump off the page. He's an incredible writer. In fact, the vast majority of the of the best investors you read, whether it be Einhorn, whether it be Loeb, these guys write incredible letters. That's not a coincidence. So 
how do I handle the criticism? I handle the criticism in a similar way to how you handle the formation of the original thesis. You assess it, you try to due diligence it, you cross-check it against your own work, and if it's strong enough, you have to change your mind, I guess is, is the honest answer. Yeah. And you're right, from a, from a pride perspective, it's not easy. And there's obviously confirmation bias in the sense that, look, I've already put myself out here with this idea, you know, it's going to look bad if I, it's going to be difficult to change my mind publicly, but over time it becomes easier. I've been wrong enough in public now. I've changed my, my mind in public enough times now that frankly, I mean, it's funny to tie it back to what we were discussing about authenticity and um, being true to yourself on your podcast, but it, it applies also with our investing in that I think people appreciate when you I mean, look, if you're wrong, you're wrong, right? If you're wrong and you come out and say, look, new information has come to light. This is meaningful information. It's forced me to to rethink through X, Y, Z. This is no longer a good investment or no, no longer meets my criteria for investment, whatever. Like on occasion, it's tough to say and to do, but I think I think honestly, people respect that more. They they understand it comes from a, a decent place. I mean, it's, it's part of the beast, right? No one bets a thousand. So I think, I think yeah. there is room publicly to say that it's difficult to say the first few times but frankly i mean look i've had some absolute shockers you know since i've been kind of out there publicly i was very publicly bearish tesla i was very publicly bearish neo the chinese ev company lost a lot of money being short both of those names and i've copped to it basically on various occasions and yeah it's part of the game so look i wouldn't say it's easy necessarily but i do think that at the end of the day people understand it happens as long as you do it for the right reasons, you know, you kind of new information comes to light, something you thought would happen didn't happen, you were wrong in some part of the thought process. And as John Maynard Keynes said, you know, when the facts change, change your mind, change your mind, yeah. no doubt. What did you learn from those two ideas being short? And I even kind of think Netflix might fall into the same bucket. Netflix is, yeah. Netflix, I didn't really ever short it per se. I was just very skeptical yeah, you didn't about like, it. you didn't like it, but I'm, I'm yeah. Yeah, but okay. We can talk, My look, apologies I, for putting those words in your mouth. Not at but all. But I, I kind of think they're three similar. My learnings from this 10 years, and maybe, you know, this is like one 10-year gap in history or whatever, and if rates go up, maybe this yeah. whole thing changes. I will never short a founder-led company <laughs> that can spin a good okay. story, ever. Like, I just won't do it anymore. Yeah. Uh, uh, not I that mean, I did in big size, but like I messed around on Tesla. I sold some call spreads and I had some puts and stuff. And that was just like, I just got waxed on it. I got waxed on it too. I got waxed on it too. Yeah. Look, no, what did I learn from it? Well, look, it goes to the heart of my approach. So, so, so basically when I try to short things, I try to short things with busted balance sheets, right? When I think there's a trigger for the credit gravity let's say the the yeah for the unsustainable debt burden to fall on top of the equity right so i mean obviously it has to be a bad business right and it has to have a busted balance sheet but more than both of those two things you, you have to be trying to identify what's going to cause the house of cards to fall over is it a covenant breach mm -hmm. is it a debt maturity wall you know typical credit credit type stuff is it some kind of failed asset sale or some kind of failed attempt to raise money and so both those two trades, Neo and Tesla, they were both conceived not just around this is a shitty business, you know, this will never make any money. It was more conceived around this idea that they had a capital problem, they had a liquidity problem, and that was going to catalyze. So you remember the Tesla case. Elon was being sued by the SEC. 
there was a huge debate whether he could actually tap the equity market. He had a very large market cap underneath him, but it was kind of illusory if you couldn't actually raise equity, right? You had that mm -hmm. huge convert coming due. It was like $1.5 billion or something. They didn't have a lot of cash. This is before the Model 3 ramp in China, before all that. So there was real going concern risk. And subsequent to this, Elon has come out and said, you know, we were three weeks away from, from dying, which is a whole other kettle of fish with regard to disclosures. But, but that's kind of ancient history. So the conceit was they won't be able to raise money because the SEC really wants to crack down on Elon because he basically pulled his pants down in front of them. And if that happens, then there might be a forced acceleration. Um, they won't be able to meet par on the the bond, or even if they make make par on the convert, then they're going to burn a lot of cash yeah, the next couple. Like no liquidity. Exactly. Now the yeah. problem was that didn't happen. SEC backed off. Yeah. They raised a bunch of money. Stock actually fell after that. If you remember, this was in early 2019. Stock made its lows after they raised a boatload of new equity, which was the key kind of dagger because. Normally, I would have just covered as soon as they were able to raise equity because it meant the SEC didn't care and therefore, you know, there's no credit catalyst. So I should be out. I should be gone. But because the stock actually fell a lot after that, I still thought I was right. So the price kind of mm. threw me off. So the stock actually went from 250 or 300 all the way to 170 pre-split. This is all pre-split. So much, much lower than where we are. And I fell into the trap of thinking that the price was lower. Therefore, I was right when actually I was wrong because the credit catalyst is gone. And the thing about credit is it's so reflexive, right? You can go from being a busted cap structure to a levered equity story, right? Very quickly. Yeah. And that, essentially that's what happened with Neo as well. I mean, a much more kind of annoying, hmm. not annoying, a much more almost illegal version I of like that. I like how you put that. Yeah? I like how you put that, yeah. That's that's a smart way of thinking but, but that's that's often how it works these these levered equity stories like on the way down they look inevitable and then as soon as that kind of credit refraction happens and often happens like now when interest rates go to zero and risk appetite is through the roof they bounce back and they boomerang back harder just like a bungee cord off the bottom and that's yeah. because the key overhang was this idea that the debt actually was an overhang and if the debt is not an overhang then it's rocket fuel on the way up, right? Financial yeah. leverage. So yeah, this is this is Transdime coming out of March. Exactly, exactly. So it's why we should have all been long Party City and Tupperware. Dude, I shorted Tupperware bonds at par in January of 2020. I covered them at 40. No, I didn't cover them at 40. I covered them in the 50s post-March. They bottomed at 40 or something. And then they made par. A year later, they made par. Wow. And this, I mean, obviously the stock went from 10 to one to 35, the stock. Tupperware oh. was the be one of the best performing stocks last year. Levered, crappy equity business. Everyone thought it would go under, you know, terrible working capital, declining comps. Guess what? COVID happened. Everyone started buying stuff again, all these, you know, Tupperware type products and boomerangs back really hard. I got really lucky to get out of the way in time. So, yeah. I mean, if, if that the common lesson for me is if the credit catalyst is not there, you got to get out of Dodge. You got to get out of Dodge in a hurry. And at one or two times where I didn't obey that rule, I got carried out feet first. Hmm. I have, I was talking to Toby about this in his pod. I, I've, when I think about the, the ideas that I've had that have been big winners a lot of them are either on the other side of a short thesis or a credit like a, a credit 
focused equity view, if that makes mm. any sense, right? A lot yep. like what you're doing. Yep. So like Intrepid Potash, that was a company that like I knew I, I had banked it previously. I knew the bankers in the bank group, mm. right? I I didn't know I wasn't like I didn't know what they were doing, but I knew the players. And I was like, the I know how these people think. Like I think they're gonna get this deal done. And sure, you know, sure enough. But I don't know how to have that kind of... I've been trying to reconstruct how to have that view without actually knowing the people in the room. Uh, like, like if I were to try to replicate the Intrepid Potash, like what, who are the actual players? Who has the voting rights? How are they going to talk to these people? What are the incentives of the people? Like the banking group and the... like the, Intrepid had a pension fund involved. I haven't been able to get there yet. But I, I think following... One of the reasons that I was comfortable with that banking group is they were a group that is focused on food production. Yeah. So they all understand commodity cycles and they all understand what when a company needs to actually be supported for the right reasons and when it needs to be supported or or doesn't need to be supported, right? And like kind of needs to go to runoff. So maybe having like a, if there's a credit shop that's focused on an industry vertical that has some control, maybe that would be a little bit of a hack, but I'm not. I'm not sure. The best, the best. How do you think through that? Yeah, I mean, it's the, the interesting thing about credit versus equity is there's privileged information, as you, as you well know. So, you know, the equity market is sitting there waiting for the 10Ks and their 10Qs and you know fair disclosure rules, whereas the creditors may may actually know hugely meaningful information in advance of you. So, the way I've tried to do it, I mean, this this is kind of an interesting segue because one of my biggest misses in the last year actually was Tupperware. Maybe not the equity necessarily, but definitely the bonds because I knew the story well and had been following it and obviously made money on the downside. So I should have been well positioned to make a lot of that money back on the upside. And there was one key trigger and that is during the, maybe not the height of the crisis last year, but a couple of months after, maybe it was May or something, May, June, I'd have to look it up. The company was tapped out. They had no liquidity. Okay. They had a bit of cash, but most of it was offshore. So not to go too much into the weed, but Tupperware has a bunch of operating subs. It's very difficult to take the money out of China. It's not that easy to take the money out of that. Um, so when they say they have X amount of cash on balance sheet, it actually they have yeah, a very low amount of have that. Right. So they're basically re- dependent upon the, the revolving credit facility from the bankers. There's some distressed bonds that are, as I said, they're trading in the 40s or whatever, 40, 50 cents on the dollar, and they're due in like a year. But there's no tappable liquidity other than the bankers. Now, all of a sudden, during May, June or whatever, the bankers rolled their covenants or waived their covenants and they allowed the company to start buying back the bonds, which are underneath them. So so the bonds are obviously hmm. a junior obligation subordinated to the to the RCL. Yeah, so why are they letting some exactly. liquidity go out to buy a junior obligation? Exactly. And that was the tell. The company did a tender for the bonds, not a full tender. They were buying back, I don't know, twenty percent of them or something, twenty, twenty five percent, and they tendered like fifty cents or something. When the bonds were 40, they went from 40 to 51. So no one took the tender. And I couldn't work it out. I was like, why are the bankers... The numbers were all terrible, right? They were burning cash. It was still mid-COVID. There was nothing in the numbers that would tell you they're doing well, except the fact that the bankers are letting them tender for the bonds. Sure enough, they did one tender at 50, whatever it was. They did another tender at 70. Next quarter comes out. Not a great quarter, not a horrible quarter, but fine. Next quarter comes out, blowout quarter, cost cuts. Bonds all of a sudden go back to 95. Bonds are going to make par. 
in the meantime, the stock went from two to 30, as I said, or four to 30 or whatever it was. So the answer to your question is it's, it's not entirely obvious all the time, but every now and then there are credit tells. There are credit tells. If you can't work out why something is happening, why the lenders are doing something, you know, they have more information than you. So I, I toyed with the idea of buying some bonds in the 50s post that turn or whatever. I was like, ah, the numbers are so bad. It's such a shit business. Like all this stuff that I already knew. I was like, ah, it's so crap. And by the way, I already had a big investment in a competing business that was doing much, much better. So like, do I want more Mexico exposure? Tupperware has a pretty sizable Mexican business. And I decided not to pull the trigger, but that was a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Huh. I like that. I like, I mean, that makes so much sense. When, when I was in, in banking, when stuff goes bad, it's all liquidity. All we would do is talk about liquidity, right? My last year, I, I worked on some credits that were pretty distressed. And I kind of wish that I went to work out for a year just to kind of get that experience of really working through like weekly liquidity. But I'm also pretty glad I didn't. <laughs> but yeah, so if somebody's letting you use liquidity to tender for something junior to that uh, to the obligation that you owe them it's crazy, like, there's right? a pretty good chance that there's a plan there totally totally i mean it's obviously hindsight's 2020 surely i should have seen it before but i didn't but that was the conceit or at least that is the conceit going forward it's kind of look for these little credit signals like on the upside and the downside by the way where either the senior lending group is adding or withdrawing liquidity yeah, for, for, for US issuers, it's it's pretty good. Like most of these things they have to... So for example, if any kind of change in covenant terms, any kind of change in the collateral package, there will almost always be a filing. And at the very least, you can sense the direction of travel from those filings. And when things are distressed enough or yeah. beaten up enough, that's all it needs, right? Like you're buying these bonds at 45 cents, whatever they are. Like you're not... And by the way, these are like one year, one year instruments. So you're literally making an existential bet. And if you can't understand why the senior creditors are extending the leash when they don't have to, like there's literally no reason why they would have to do this. And then, you know, it's big names on the board as well. JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, whoever they are, like they, they definitely have all the information. So yeah. you kind of piggyback on their decision-making, I guess. But, you know, I try so also what are you not to beat myself at, up uh, too much. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I I mean, dude, that's a, I, I the one thing. Well, there's a lot that I take from Buffett and Munger, but the one thing that I really, really believe is rub your nose in your mistakes. To me, when I win on an investment thesis, I have a hard time decoupling, even if I know that I was right. Like Curate, I was right. Yeah. But I still don't know how much of it's luck. You know, like there's kind of that question, but when you lose you definitely were wrong, right? Or when you forgo an opportunity. That's why RH eats at me so bad because I was like, I know that people are stuck at home. I know they're going to be investing in in their house. I know that my kids are out here pouring baking soda all over my floor and like just ruining shit around me. And I like, I, I knew it, but also there was just so much financial and operating leverage on that business that I couldn't get there and I had misread a covenant and I think PFH on Twitter, I think he pointed it out to me. And once I, once I realized that I was like, all right, I'm not, I'm not going to touch this thing. But in retrospect, the the rocket fuel worked to the upside. And yeah, I asked him, did. I was it like, did. what, I mean, what yeah. are you going to do? Well, I asked him, I was like, what are you going to do 
I think they had an upcoming obligation and they said that they were going to use cash on hand. And this was like late March. And I was like, you guys are going to use, maybe it was April. Maybe it was April. Who cares? End of the day. I was like, you guys are going to sacrifice liquidity right now. Like that doesn't make sense to me. Why not try to do something other than that? And the answer was, we have a shit ton of orders coming in and you just have no idea how many, you know, the cash that's about to come in. Let so, me ask, let me ask you this though. Oh, well. Let me ask you this. What did you buy instead of RH? You bought Transdime, yeah, right? I mean, it, it was, yeah, yeah. So it's not a huge, I mean, yes, I agree with you. The opportunity cost is not massive, but I don't know, man, that would have been, well, it could have been like real money. Yes, it could have been real money, but the risk adjusted, or I guess the, expected value return there. from owning something that you know a lot better that you do diligence a lot more so i i, I don't know how much stock transdime went up how much it went up versus rh i know rh went up a lot right so i, I imagine the absolute yeah. dollars would have been larger in your pocket but the sleep adjusted return and the the pain adjusted return from owning it so th- this yeah. is this is essentially what i tried to do and Look, I missed out on Tupperware because I actually did know that company somewhat well. I'd done enough work. So that that's a real miss. But for a lot of this stuff where maybe yeah. you're venturing off the reservation a little bit, it's like you're putting out fires left, right, and center in March, right? Like, dude, my account drew yeah. down 50%. Right, look, I had a huge position in air cap, aircraft financing, right? Yeah. And yeah. it's very yeah. difficult that to make brutal. an investment decision when one day the stock's at 60 and literally seven sessions later, it's at 10 or whatever it was. It's like yeah, that was crazy. The market doesn't often force you to make investment decisions of such consequence so quickly. Yeah. Right. To your point, that's actually one I probably actually missed. Right? Because Bear that's cap. one that I actually have a view on. Yeah, because I have a yeah. view on the the end markets and the industry and that's that's in the the wheelhouse set of things that I actually do understand from doing work on the airlines. So that's probably a more unforgivable miss. That's why I brought it up, Bill. I wanted to make you feel worse about missing something. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. No, but I, I do think you're right. And the other thing that's that's correct, if I'm if I'm really or when I'm honest with myself, I would not have realized all of RH's return. There's not a chance in hell I would have actually held it the whole time. That's the thing. And, you know, that's the thing, right? That's always the way. Yeah. Like we can convince yeah, ourselves to, to step into at. the breach. But like, I mean, I look at some of these stock performances, like let's say I'd even been smart enough or lucky enough to catch overstock.com, right? Or Party City, Party City, right? Or some of the cruise, whatever. So take some levered existential bet on some of these stocks surviving, right? I would have dumped yeah. them when they doubled or tripled. I know myself. Yeah. I, I, there's no margin yeah. of safety once the EV goes back to where it was on 2019 numbers, whatever it is, right? And they're still burning a shitload of cash. There's, I mean, some of these things are still... Yeah. Look, RH is, is a different kettle of fish, much better business, you know, earning huge returns. Yeah, yeah. It's not no, the same. generally yeah, speaking. But generally speaking, you take these flyers on stuff where you you don't you, you don't know it as well as you, you, you want to know it and you're venturing a little bit off the reservation. You're not strapped in for the five ten xs You're not. You're punting out when it doubles or triples. So it's... Yeah. It's a it's a false it's a false comparison and in that sense it's an unfair one on yourself, which is what no, I tell I myself when I'm swimming up and down the pool anyway. <laughs> no, I, I I that I do think that's objectively correct, man. And 
And the other thing, at least in that particular security, is I grew up, my mom was an interior designer for a lot of my life. And I, I do have a sense of like what really good furniture is. And I have a sense of how it's priced. And I, I don't know that I fully buy the story. I just kind of understand. I understand it from a branding perspective. So, right. shit, what did you say that I forgot? Crap, what did you just say? Probably a lot. It's quite Oh, I don't know. It was so smart. <laughs> Damn it. I'm really enjoying this conversation, man. The punting out. Yeah, man, it's great to chat. I, I 100% like a long time coming. But, um, I know, after yeah. this, are you going mean, to let me sub your service? <laughs> uh, Will you let me atone for my sin? I, well, I no think sin, I just no did, sin. didn't I? You did, you <laughs> well, did, you did. I don't know. I feel badly about that. I've gone a couple times, but oh well. Totally, man. Anytime Shit, oh you'd well. like to come. Anyway, misses misses of things that uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Misses misses of things that that we didn't actually miss. I think that that's a really important thing to be honest with yourself about, and I need to make it a a more consistent thing to journal. But I I've been better about it, and being real honest, I think is like one of those necessary components of being a good investor. Like I, I think if you if you lie to yourself a lot, and I guess people would say that I'm lying to myself a little bit on Wells Fargo. Like I obviously didn't see rates going up. I didn't. I didn't have a view on rates. What I did know is that there was a chance they'd go up. Sometimes it's like, well, this thing was like so cheap, and there was a lot under the hood that I saw, and you know, it it actually is playing out the way that I thought. But if I was if I was going to be your confessor your your priest, let's say, I would give you a much, much harder time about the Wells Fargo sin of emission than the RH one. Because there was no there was no existential oh, yeah? risk with Wells Fargo. There was no chance you could lose all your money. RH is still a levered equity stub at the time. You could have you could have gone to zero, right? Yeah. If the world went in a different direction, you could have lost all your money. Wells Fargo there was never any question of solvency. So if I had to crack the whip I'd probably crack it on Wells. But even then, like I still subscribe to what Ian said on your pod a few weeks ago when he was mentioning you always got to take care of what's in the basket first and foremost because that's what can really hurt you. So it's still it's still not the thing to really, you know, flagellate yourself about missing out on excess returns from new names during a period of extreme crisis. I still think don't be too hard on yourself basically. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. So, how did you deal with with the air cap? I mean, Dude, what like what was going on in your mind? It was crazy because I was I was in Japan I, at that time. I was still living in London, but we happened to be visiting Japan. My daughter was three months old, so it was like her first international trip. So I was like up all night watching my watching my fortune get destroyed. Oh, no. Like, you know, this is like March, March 7th or whatever, March 1st to March 15th, basically <laughs> trying to figure out Man, how he's going to get a little kid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was stressful, but basically in a way I was fortunate. And what I mean by that is, look, the market went so fast from pricing in normalcy to pricing in bankruptcy that you almost didn't have time to do anything. So if hmm. I wanted to sell and get out, there was a period of a few days to make the decision. By the time the stock went from, okay, when the stock went from 60 to 40, I doubled up. That was a big mistake, obviously. In ret- retrospect, yeah, that was I a- did that on Delta. I bought when Delta went out and then I switched, thank God. Yeah, I mean, you, but look, that was tough. You managed to switch and get out of Dodge in time. All power to you. That's, that's an incredible, 
incredible like mental mental flexibility gymnastics that you could could get there but by the time aircap went from 40 to 20 i was like there's no point in selling it now the market's pricing it at you know 20 percent of book value whatever it's it's either going to be fine and go back to double what it is right at least which is still only half of book value or it's going to go bust but it's just a terrible trade to sell it now it's just terrible terrible now of course it still went from 20 to 10 and so then I was in a position yeah. where I actually had to start liquidating other stuff to buy more air cap because I was so convinced at that point that it wouldn't file that I had to start taking big losses on other parts of my book, crystallizing them to try to bring my cost basis down. So look, in the end, I did okay on air cap. It was a multi-year hold for a, a pedestrian return and a terrible, a terrible sharp ratio on the trade. But I managed to buy enough, you know, at 12, 13, 14, 15 bucks that when I exited in the 40s or whatever, I sold more than that above there. But let's say the average was like 40, the average exit. Yeah, I managed to do oh, nothing great. I mean, I probably under the market return given I bought first started buying it in 2015, but it wasn't the out and out disaster that it looked like it would have was going to be in March. It was an acceptable outcome. Mm-hmm. But I mean, look, the, the key lesson though was I was way too big in that position. It was a sizing question. And again, this is this is how the market gets you, right? Because for many years, this had been the most bulletproof business, literally like clockwork. Yeah, They would put up a solid double-digit ROE, didn't look overly levered. Buy shares. They have buyback shares, well-managed, very diversified, You know, fleet transition, younger fleet, owning the right planes, management said all the right things. And then bang, this comes along and kind of blew them out of the water growing yeah right one one of the most bankable trends in the world was travel increasing year after year after year yeah and then all of a sudden you know what got me on delta to switch was there was a an account actually on twitter that i interacted with a lot it was fisher's black okay and when i said that i bought more he had said something to the effect of like the first stage of taking a loss is is buying more and he, he it was like a joke right and he said like five bullet points of like <laughs> and and i read it and i was like this dude's got a real good point and yeah. and then like i saw the news continue to come out and i was just like i i need to like listen to this rather than just dismiss it and that's that's one of the powers of twitter yeah like that thought when he said that in that way and that's a dude that i I interact with and I, ex- I respect. So I, w- I was like, all right, this makes sense. Makes sense. Right. I mean, Gavin Baker said on some pod, I think it was O'Shaughnessy's pod a while ago during, but well, maybe it's during the crisis. He said during a, a massive kind of risk off environment or a massive crisis, you have a very small window where first order thinking actually works incredibly well. It's like, look, people yeah. are running from trains in Italy. People are like trying to get out of, you know, the pandemic zone, sell everything, travel, sell everything, hospitality, just sell it. But mind you, you had a very short window, like a matter of days. If you didn't do it then, as I said, things were already pricing in. So, you know, by the time I was yeah. actually looking, but by the time I had got my head right and got myself in a place where I could think about selling, the stock is already pricing in bankruptcy. But uh, Look, I was in Tokyo at the time. And I went and had lunch with my buddy, who's a senior guy at, at, at an investment bank here. And, you know, so he's interacting with these hedge fund clients, right? This is like March 10th or something. We go and have lunch, serene, beautiful winter's day in Japan, sun's out shining. Everyone's having their cappuccinos. He comes in there and I said, dude, I'm, I'm getting destroyed on, on some of these, you know, these airline trades, these aircraft trades. 
And he, he looked at me and he said, JR, get out. Get out. He just kept on saying, get out, get out. So he's, he's on the front lines, right? So he's seeing it. And I was like, dude, you can keep saying that. And I know your clients are all dumping everything they have. But you have to understand, if it goes bankrupt, I think I get a higher return from here or, or whatever. You know, I, it, like you can say get out now, but if it doesn't go bankrupt, then the return, you just can't sell it now. Like so I had enough conviction yeah. in, in some of the stuff that I didn't just dump it. So, so now, you know, six months later, every time he texts me, I just reply saying, get out, get out. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he said, dude, 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 the Fed, the Fed changed everything. The Fed changed everything. I was like, okay, man, whatever. Okay. That's true. They did change yeah. everything, but good thing I didn't get out because otherwise I'd be, you know, dancing on a street corner for nickels right now. <laughs> well, you'd have to get into swimmer shape before you did that so you could take your shirt off or something to generate some funds. Maybe pennies. <laughs> maybe pennies. Not nickels. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to give away money to watch people dance me on the or watch me dance on the street. So that's me, wild. You and me what both, a, bro. What you a and weird me both. time that was. I, it was crazy, One of right? the things that saved me. Yeah, one of the things that saved me was I had talked to some people and I got a speech from some from somebody that sort of reciprocated in a way that I was a little bit earlier on COVID than I otherwise would have been. And that was like, I mean, that, that like changed, you know, quite I mean, a that, bit of my life. The airline uh, pivot, man. And, and the airline this, pivot the, was, was nails, dude. Yeah, no, that worked out. And and it's amazing how, like, like when I look back at it, the difference between my version of success and failure was like a knife's edge. I don't love that. But, you know, do I think that that, I still think that bet was the right bet to make. I, I mean, I still like that bet. I don't like it now. Maybe I learned a little bit. And maybe that's exactly why I should have retraded into it, right? But I mm. just, I I didn't have that in me. <laughs> You know what's it's funny? Like I'm not going down this again. All these, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was super high stress, max stress, right? Even owning those shares through that period, I, I mean, look, I, I considered, I considered punching out of stuff like Aircap a long time sooner than I than I did in the end, just for that reason, right? But you know how a lot of people post this pandemic have said a variation of. This is why you have to own anti-fragile businesses. This is why you can never own airlines. This is why you can never own asset-heavy businesses. Like it's some kind of obvious gospel. I always found that was kind of hilariously misinformed. Like what happens if it had not been a pandemic? What happens if it had been a worldwide internet outage, right? What happens if there'd been just a a virus, a, a computer virus? Now, obviously, yep. a huge number of businesses run on the internet anyway. So I'm not saying that airlines would have, of course, airlines would have been screwed as well. But Amazon also would have been screwed. There's nothing, you know, all these online businesses that run on the internet, like if there's a worldwide virus that captures the internet, like how is that any less likely than a worldwide pandemic? I don't understand. It's all it's all resulting. People are just resulting because yeah. it happened to be a worldwide pandemic. Like no, no business is inherently, okay, they look more anti-fragile just because of what we've gone through, right? But I'm not sure it's that easy to just wake up in the morning and say, so that's why I own Zillow. Well, that's why I own Wayfair. That's why I own Amazon, even the best of the best, right? It's, it's, it's way more complicated and difficult than that. And so I, going back to our previous point about missed opportunities, sins of omission, commission, I really try to not beat myself up too much about you know, how I traded this or how I traded that. And obviously you have to learn from your mistakes, but 
so much of the last 12 months has been exceptional in 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 every sense right like and that's that's why i quite i actually disagree with you on the travel point you're making before like it's very easy for us to fall into this trap of oh you know this you know this this has changed forever that's changed forever that's not coming back this is not coming back now obviously the glide path discussion is something else but humans like to travel man humans like to move around yeah no um, doubt i so I here's here's back. what i think yeah and i th- i think that maybe the nuance of the conversation is where we'll we will agree i don't think travel i don't mm. think leisure travel is permanently impaired at all i think i think leisure travel is going to mm-hmm. boom and resume the previous trend I am more yeah. concerned with business travel taking a permanent step down because I think that there were a lot of frivolous trips that, or, or they weren't frivolous. I shouldn't say that, but I think that this past year exposed that maybe there's a different way. And like one of the one of the things that got me to really reframe how I was thinking about things is I was talking to a buddy at a consulting firm. And he said, look, man, we used to fly like a team of people in to a a Mm. hotel right near, you know, wherever our engagement was. They'd be there from Monday to Friday. They'd fly back. They'd fly back the next Monday. They'd fly back Friday. They'd fly back the next. And he was like, we're still going to need to to fly people in. Like you need people on the ground to to do an engagement. Mm. You don't need that many people that many times. So he was saying that, like, if he were thinking through what the ripple effect would be, some of these hotel chains that are, like, kind of close to corporate parks and stuff, he's like, I would be really, really nervous about underwriting their previous occupancy. Now, it may work, right? I mean, maybe maybe that's wrong, but, like, I was really early in the pandemic, I was like, oh, we're definitely going back to the way that life is. I guess after you know yeah. a year of living this way, I do think habits are are reformed. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess the way you phrase it there is, I guess, I guess the point you're really making is the latency. Like habits can be habits can return over time, but if they're, you know, seventy five percent of previous travel business travel dependency, then all these hotel chains are screwed, right? Because you know it's a fixed cost game or right? some are right not all but some yeah. yes and it's what makes think, me really yeah, nervous look. about the airlines i'm not that nervous about air cap though because i think that you can still have planes flying around with lower load factors right like i'm not sure that that means fewer planes that could actually mean decreased economics for the airline i, I don't know how it all how it all works it's well i guess it's going to be complicated but the bearish yeah the bearish pushback on the whole leasing debate would be over time lower load factors are reflected in lower lease rates because it means lower profits for the yeah. airlines which means lower returns for the asset owners so it's it just takes a while to flow through the PL because a lot of those a lot of those leases are locked in for you know seven eight nine years although again a lot of those did get renegotiated during the pandemic right so one of the issues you do have to get your head around is how much of the recent PL deterioration in something like an air cap was truly one-off right actual impairments on the, the few crappy airlines that went out of business or whatever, and how much of it was leases getting rewritten at lower economics because lease factors have come down aggressively during the pandemic, right? That's a very difficult, you can't, you can't find that number in the PL. It's not disclosed, right? You have to make assumptions. You have to form your own conclusion. 
it's a more tricky and that combined with the fact that the the stock is now re-rated back to 80% of book value more than that yeah about 80% of book value and one acquisition they announced that I wasn't a huge fan of that's kind of why I'm no longer in that that investment why didn't you like that acquisition the gcas yeah man it's going to create a juggernaut is it though what what synergies can you get from managing 4000 planes that you you don't get with 1000 or 1500 planes i mean the whole so so okay so yeah. look let's let's break this down so so there's a lot of history here right so aircap was founded by a few ex executives of an organization called Guinness Peat Aviation. Guinness Peat Aviation was once the largest company in Ireland and then it blew up spectacularly in the early 90s because they, they essentially ordered way too many white tail planes. Basically they made a bunch of orders for aircraft from the OEMs and they didn't have committed clients for them and the market softened for a couple of years and they blew up. It was a form of financial leverage they blew up. The company almost went under and it got rescued by GCAS and GCAS took it over and it became the world's largest aviation least lessor and Guinness Pete essentially disappeared. Some of the execs went off to run a few other companies, one of which was Aircap, which grew over time to become what it is today. So it's basically like putting back Humpty Dumpty again. I would say a few things. I mean, look, by the way, the stock price is truth, right? And since I said I was not bullish on this acquisition or bearish, and since I sold my shares, the stocks have gone up 10% or more. So the market's saying a different thing to what I'm saying, but basically the watchword from Angus, who is the CEO, Angus Kelly is the CEO of Aircap for many, many years was, we're going to always put shareholder returns first. We're not going to grow for growth's sake. We're going to get younger. The fleet is going to get younger. And we're also going to have less reliance on wide bodies. And over time, they've They've also shrunk as a percentage of their existing fleet. The order book has kind of shrunk. So it's quite a different entity to something like Airlease where the, the order book versus the actual fleet is very, very large. So there's a committed growth as long as those orders actually turn into revenues when the planes get delivered. Now, with this GCAS transaction, they kind of they violated a few of those precepts in, in kind of not great ways. First of all, they're diversifying into other areas of the business that Frankly, GCAS never made money in and Aircap has no expertise in. They're getting into helicopters. They're getting into freighters, two very different markets. Look, they're not big parts of the asset pool, so it's not the core of the argument, but I think it's more diversification than diversification. They are getting older. The fleet's getting meaningfully older. It's getting slightly more levered. And the wide body concentration is going down initially because the GCAS fleet is actually okay, but over time, the wide body order book is actually bigger. So I think over time, the wide body, wide body percentage mm-hmm. will actually go up a bit as well. More than that though, it's a question of opportunity cost. So essentially they spent all this time and many years going from four and a half, five times levered post acquiring ILFC, which they bought from AIG in a, in a very, uh, in an excellent transaction in 2013. They spent many years decreasing the leverage and improving the fleet quality and get got down to say two and a half times net levered, that debt to equity basis. And now they're going up to 3.2, 3.3 times to maybe get a bigger, to get a bigger fleet of somewhat equivalent, maybe worse quality, older, take on a lot more risk when instead they could have just levered up and bought back their own stock, essentially. Why, why didn't they? So it's more of an opportunity cost question. Why didn't they just go to 3.3 times levered and buy back a third of their shares at, you know, 20% discount the book, which is what they would have done. Yeah over the last four or five years, that would have been their standard response. 
And, you know, Angus would probably say, look, GCAS is depreciating their planes much more aggressively than us. Therefore, we think the true book value is actually higher. They're being too, their depreciation schedules are actually aggressive, right? We actually think we're getting these assets. There's some, you know, a billion or whatever, two billion of hidden value, which that's another interesting question because on previous conference calls, Angus has always said that air caps depreciation schedules were the most aggressive in the industry. So if that was true, how could GCASs be so much more aggressive than yours? So it's, I'm not saying he's wrong. It, he might not be wrong now, but he definitely then wasn't telling the truth in previous calls, which questions the whole rationale. So my sense is he wants to get bigger because he wants to put the G, Guinness Pete Empire back together. My sense is he thinks this is a one-time swing, like he's not going to get another chance to buy this. And he's taking a big bet on the cycle, which is fine. But it seems like, a, I don't know, it's just not, the opportunity cost-wise, I don't love it. And the key reason is he didn't pay in cash. He's paying largely in stock. So the best case outcome is now Larry Culp owns half your equity. It's almost like a merger. So GE is going to own 46% of the stock. This is not the world's most liquid stock. Like if they try to get out, it's going to be a cap on the equity for years, years and years. So at the end of the day, look, I, I got all hot under the collar and, and shout all over the deal on Twitter. That was probably too aggressive. It's not the worst deal in the world, but just opportunity cost wise, there's better places for my capital now. And it, it, it may, if, if the deal works out, great. I'm sure I'll look silly. That's fine. But I don't think it's going to be, I don't think I'm, I'm missing a huge amount by, by getting out now, basically. How much bigger are they going to be than Air Lease now? Quite a bit, right? Look, Air Lease, yeah, Air Lease was already not large though, right? Air Lease only has 300 planes. So they had a big order book, but they only have 300 planes in the fleet. The third biggest was, I think, one of H&A's subsidiaries, Avalon, another Irish company that basically came out of the, the Guinness Peak collapse. All these are Irish companies. For tax reasons, a lot of these businesses got, got founded in Ireland back in the day because they have favorable tax treatment. But yeah, I mean, look, if this thing goes through, they'll have 2,500 planes. Air lease is only 300. Even Avalon is... I'm not, it's under a thousand. I don't know the exact number. I mean, look, what did the, what did the pandemic tell us? Being bigger was actually a problem because it meant that you were forced to lend to everyone. Right. Like, yeah. and the other thing is like air, air cap always talked a lot about their great underwriting culture and how good their risk management was. Well, guess what? Air lease smacked the pants off them during the pandemic. Air lease made money last year. Made a lot of money. Air lease made put up like a close to a ten percent ROE. Maybe not ten percent. Maybe seven eight percent. Whatever they made money. They didn't take any massive losses on any discrete exposures. Meanwhile, Aircap took a bath, an absolute bath. They had five percent of their fleet out to Norwegian, so they got equitized on a bunch of that. All their brand new seven eighty seven white uh, Dreamliners. Most of them were out to Norwegian, and guess what? Norwegian went under, and then they turned around and released most of them to the successor entity as well. They took a bath on, on Virgin. They took a bath on a couple other clients that went under. Of, of course, they're, they're too big. They have to lend to everyone. So the bigger yeah. you get, you're forced to lend to everyone. So yeah, I don't really buy this. There, obviously, there's a G&A synergy argument, but it's, it's pretty small. So look, the story, maybe the story's still there. It's just a lot messier now. The valuation is not what it was, right? They didn't buy... When they bought ILFC from AIG, they they paid 55 cents on the dollar. And their stock was a lot more expensive as well. At the time, their stock traded at one and a half times book value. So when they were paying for ILFC, 
paying in stock made a lot of sense. Now they struck this GE deal. They gave up 46% of the pro forma equity, but their own stock's trading at 75, 80% of book value. So the math is just, and, and they paid a higher multiple of book. So the math, the math is not as great. I don't know. I just, just I think it's you know. just a, in, yeah. I think it's, well, a, it's, thoughtful, like a, it's a, a thoughtful disagreement. Yeah, totally. And um, by the way, one of the reasons that I did not buy AirCap when people were saying you should buy AirCap, I was like, I don't know that industry well enough. And you are completely schooling me on why I didn't. I'm sure I got a lot <laughs> like, wrong. I, Obviously, the, the market's telling me I'm wrong every day. So, but yeah, look, it's it's an interesting. Yeah, I guess when and, I saw the deal, hmm. when I saw the deal, I wondered if if an entity that large could get like incremental purchasing synergies when you when you're taking out. You know, GE, it's it's not as competitive. Like, do you become the buyer that Boeing and Airbus sort of need to go to because the airlines now have more debt, so they're probably going to need to lease planes? Like, I don't know. That's kind of how my mind was working. That's a sexy story, and I wish it worked that way, but the reality is Southwest Airlines, when they order 50 planes, gets the same price or better than Aircap when they order 200 planes. Because the yeah, is that, yeah is that the so? name brand airlines and look maybe Southwest never orders directly from the OEMs again okay so maybe there is a business model change going through nah they will yeah so, so will. South Southwest is fine but you know maybe some of these other ones that left. Ryanair will too right yeah Ryanair so. will so so that's the problem they cannot be seen to give the cheapest prices to pure financial buyers the actual operators will always get just as good prices so. Look, if the actual operators are too levered and can't go direct to the OEMs over time, maybe that changes at the margin, but the whole purchasing thing, it's not there in the numbers. Well, and then to what you're saying is you have a scenario where you're actually forced to lend to the less creditworthy airlines, right? Because the, the really strong ones are always going to be able to go and flex their muscle with the OEMs. Totally. I mean, we just talked about Southwest yeah, yeah, Ryanair, exactly, I'm exactly. sure. That whole Indigo fleet probably goes direct, like Wiz and all them. So, huh, that's that's interesting. Yeah, look at that. So, how the hell did you like Air Wisconsin, man? Oh, you've been following that. Okay, so well, yeah, Air Wisconsin. So, first of all, none of this is investment advice. This is an extremely dodgy- yeah. Well, you also liked it way lower, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If yeah. I recall correctly, exactly. No? Yeah. yeah, I liked it at I don't know. Under 50 cents, 45 cents, something like that. Stocks at a buck, I think, 95 cents. 90 cents or so. 90 cents, 95 cents. Look, this is a dark, almost a dark stock. Historically, it was a dark stock. Ticker is, if anyone who wants to follow along, HRBR. So the name of the company is Harbor Diversified, which is a legacy that it used to be some biotech company, failed biotech entity. And then all of a sudden... They went, they went dark for a number of years and then they popped up and in the first filing they made, it turned out they bought Air Wisconsin. It was literally what happened. Like a year ago or maybe 18 months ago, they bought Air Wisconsin. <laughs> which which is kind funny. of crazy. And the only reason they started making SEC filings again is there was enough transactions in their dark stock that they went over the minimum number of shareholders, which I, which I think is like mm-hmm. 300 shareholders of record or something. You have to start filing again. And it's pretty clear they didn't want to file again because they've been late on basically every filing they've made since then. And they they give you very little detail. But essentially, the thesis is it's a very simple one. This is a a regional carrier for United. They operate as United Express on a capacity purchase basis. So think of it like Misa Air is a good comp. Basically, the regional airline model, theoretically, it's a lot better than the actual mainline model because they are contracted out 
and they get paid a fixed amount per they, they get paid a fixed amount no matter what. If they don't fly any flights, they still get a certain minimum amount. So that's why their revenue is only down like 55% last year instead of down 90% or whatever it is. So they get certain minimums and then they also obviously get paid based on block hours and number of departures and stage length, whatever. And also they get all the, basically they just operate the plane. They, they either own the planes or lease the planes. They operate it, but almost all the, the fuel cost is essentially all paid through on a pass-through basis by United in this case. So you take a lot of risk with regards to the capacity purchase agreement, right? You take the risk that they're still going to be contracted when this contract comes up for renewal going forward. So that's that's kind of the key risk in this situation. But in the meantime, they actually generated cash last year. Like if you strip out all the government assistance, if you strip out all the one-timers and the working capital changes, they actually generated 10 million of free cash on an enterprise value that until recently was like 50 million, right? Now, why does this opportunity exist? It exists because they're almost dark stock with no coverage, no liquidity. It's a controlled entity. Half the float is owned by a couple of guys. I don't know a huge huge amount about, to be honest with you. And it's it's not listed. I mean, it's listed OTC. So this is not really investable for the vast majority of professionals. But on my numbers, I think it trades at one times free cash flow normalized, two times free cash flow normalized. And yeah, you have a you have a fair amount of risk other than the obvious risks which I've highlighted. You have a fair amount of risks regarding the um, the capacity purchase agreement. So basically, that runs out in 2023. So the key issue is: Will United extend them or not? That's risk number one, which is probably front and center. Now, I'm pretty relaxed about that because I guess for a few reasons. One, they recently appointed a CFO who came from United. He worked at United for the last 15 years. He was appointed after they renegotiated the agreement last October. So they renegotiated the agreement last October to provide more flexibility for United, but they had the option to basically tear it up, right? During the pandemic, and they didn't. And they did yeah. tear it up with another regional carrier, Sun Express, I think. I can I can look up the name. Basically, they let a couple go during the pandemic and they didn't let Air Wisconsin go. So if they weren't going to let them go during the pandemic, why would they let them go now? So that, and then also you have this United Lifer coming on board as CFO after the renegotiation. So why would he join? Yeah, the only yeah, go on. I'm I'm just gonna push back just a sure. little bit. Sure. Scott Kirby, I would almost I would almost prefer if like he knew Scott Kirby from his American days, because Scott Kirby, the new CEO, came from American. Yeah. Scott Kirby, I think, is gonna. That dude had an impressive, impressive COVID management uh, streak. I mean that I I kind of. Didn't know if he was the real deal. I knew he, I knew he had a huge reputation, but I didn't know if it was warranted. And that guy killed COVID for from a management perspective. It was pretty incredible to watch. So that's totally. that's the only like tea leave thing that you know. No, I mean, I look, don't know. but why why would he really care? I don't know. Well, I mean, so there's if the... they're doing a good job, if they're doing a good job and their on time arrivals are doing what they're supposed to and they're feeding the hub in the way well, that they're supposed to feed the hub, then they'll be fine. You hope so. You, you hope so. It's, there's no slam dunks. There's no done deals here. I mean, the issue is Delta killed their CRJ fleet, right? They basically said they're going to get phased out. So if United goes the same way, this could easily get phased out. Reading some yeah. of the mosaic, I don't think it happens in 2023. And so the, these planes is are Delta all, doing that. Yeah. Delta are said they they're phasing everybody out CRJs. Are they going to put everybody on the A220s? Do you know? I don't know if their A220s are even something slightly larger. I I, I would have to I have to yeah. read into that. But we'll we'll see what happens. The key part of the conceit is you're paying nothing for the go forward business. 
you're buying the business at half of book value today. Now, all of the asset is obviously the underappreciated value of the planes. So what they did during code was quite interesting. They basically used to have most of the fleet leased. So they bought a bunch, they basically bought all the planes they hadn't leased, they bought them in-house. And the leases were somewhat onerous. If you look at the PL, the leases were like pretty expensive. And instead of so they bought them in-house and the depreciation numbers, you know, what it is. So there's a huge amount of cash created from the difference between depreciation and capex. So they're not spending to replace the plane assets. They're just letting them age. They're letting the fleet age. And the fleet is very, very old. Not only that, they also took a big write-off when they brought the balance of the fleet in-house pre-COVID at the end of 2019, basically. So now if you look at the PL, they spend, you know, 20 million on CapEx in 2019. They spent 9 million last year, which is probably a bare bones number. Maybe the normalized number is like 12, 13 million, but they're generating 50 million. I think they're generating 45, 50 million in EBITDA, R with an R, so pre-rents. But because rents are going to almost zero because they in-house the fleet, that's the real number. So 50 million of EBITDA, less than say 10 to 15 of CapEx, they still got some nulls. Interest is small. They have no, no net debt, right? They do have some gross debt, but essentially they have no net debt. It's generating a bunch of cash and the, it's generating, I think, 30 to 35 million of free cash. And the EV, when I put on the trade, was less than that. Now this is, now the stock's gone up, right? Yeah. So you are taking risk that they're going to have a going concern business after 2023. And obviously they have to replace the fleet at some point. But basically what I think yeah. management is doing is they're running it for cash. If or when they get clarity on the capacity purchase agreement, which runs out in 2023, but United has the option to extend it for another two to five years. Coincidentally, the fleet can be run until it's 25 years old. Fleet's 18 years old. now. So I think they probably have five to seven years, in which case they could really return. I think they could return 30 to 40 million cash a year. Oh, and by the way, that's assuming it goes back to pre-COVID levels. If we do see this boom in travel, which I expect, and most of this should be visiting friends or relatives, should be leisure-related, right? Given it's it's a regional. I mean, I, there's there's going to be some business travel in there, of course. They don't disclose how much, but if you look at say Frontier Airlines disclosures or uh, Sun Country is another regional carrier, a lot of it is is leisure-related. You could have this purple patch for a couple of years that I think could be very interesting. And the other interesting thing was they took a bunch of money from the government, obviously, as part of the CARES Act to kind of tide them over. Some of that is a PPP loan that's going to get forgiven. So that's kind of like free money. But what's interesting is even though they took a bunch of money in the CARES Act, they instituted in March, so literally a few weeks ago, a buyback program for their shares where they can buy a million dollars of stock a month. A million dollars a stock a month for a company with like a 50 million market cap is a shitload of stock. By the way, the float. The <laughs> yes, float I, th- I think that that's a, yeah, that's the, a technical term. Yeah, a crap load of stock. So, and by the way, I don't <laughs> think they can even buy shares whilst, the, according to the, the CARES Act, they're prohibited from paying dividends or buying in any security of the company until September this year. So there's no reason to institute the stock buyback unless you think your stock is wildly undervalued and they can't even execute on it for you know, four or five, five months. But I guess they wanted it in there, ready to roll, and no one really covers the company. So maybe they think it stays cheap enough to kind of hoover up some shares later in the year. I, I don't know. But look, again, downside, mm. upside, right? I'm paying one times three cash flow. Yeah. I, I think, one, I think that it's interesting to hear you talk about this. Two, I would love to know if anybody knows the people that are actually behind this thing. Yes, 
because you know when you see stuff like that and they they clearly seem like they don't want to file it could be this could be one of those that you could partner with somebody that's trying to make a lot of money that wasn't trying to get found out or something like that totally right i wish i had more insights into the actors that's honestly that's never really been my strong suit as an investor i've never really had a huge not ability but i've never really tried to focus on the jockey side so much I'm not sure why like actually. Stuff. Yeah, I know. I, I can tell from the way you talk about investments, you're much more, you're much more focused on the guys managing the businesses. Just, I think maybe it's a personality trait or something for me. I've always found I'd really try to let the numbers do the do the talking, and then trust my own ability to analyze the business. And yeah. I, th- I think the reason for that is honestly because I had vast majority of my training in Japan, and you get in the room with executives, and it's. I mean, it doesn't matter what they say. It's it's basically lip service. They're just paying lip service to you. They don't, you know. And so that could be cultural. That could be like part of my training is that, you know, the Japanese, the typical Japanese executive just does not care about shareholders. So when he speaks, it doesn't necessarily mean a huge amount. And therefore, if you pay too much weight to what the manager of the business says and or what you think he might do, you're actually looking at the wrong, you're looking at the noise, not the signal. So maybe I'm biased too much from that part of my background. But that's, that's always the way I've gone about it. I've really tried to do the business analysis and let the numbers do the talking as opposed to betting on the jockey to do the right thing. Of course, in situations like this, you're right. It would be, I mean, look, this is kind of like a Mike Mitchell type trade, right? Yes. So, so yeah, I mean, if I, I should, you can connect me with Mike. He can talk to the managers. He can understand it. And then we, I can triple my position. Yeah, well, I but like that's part of what we were talking about before about the benefit of the pod. Yeah. Right? Like one of the things that I have gotten from it is, you know, I I was a little bit too obsessed with making it a business in the beginning. But I mean, the thing that I do ask of the listeners for real is like if you heard Jeremy say anything and you think that there's information that can help him, like I would like you to contact him. I happen to find this idea kind of intriguing please contact me as well. Like, let's have a phone call, especially if you know something, right? And and what I have found is that there's there are people that listen to this that work in these industries that want to reciprocate the knowledge. Yeah. So, like, that's my ask right now. Like, help me create a scuttlebutt machine. And that's what, like, like that's a lot of this bet right now. And it's been really fun. I've met a lot of interesting people through it. And I do think that I've been able to piece together some stuff that I otherwise would not. Totally. totally. So, yeah, I'm sure it will continue to happen right. and we will pay for your next beach house in where are you? Palm beach. Aren't no, I, <laughs> I'm in an undisclosed location. Uh, sorry. From the um, central command, on. the central command bunker somewhere, somewhere off the East coast of the United States. We'll pay for that bunker. That's right. Through, through areas content. The next one. So what's uh what's this training that you mentioned that that you were trained in Japan? What did you do? Well, sorry, training is kind of a generous term. I just mean I started my career in finance in Tokyo. So my education, let's say, training is probably the wrong word. My education as a as a professional, as a pro- professional investor or professional market participant was formed through my first four years of my career, which were in Japan. And so, you know, obviously whatever happened in that time was really formative for me. I mean, it's kind of the reason why I use the approach that I use today, this credit-based approach, was because I started on the basically the cross-asset sales desk at Goldman in Tokyo, which essentially meant selling hedge funds, everything from credit derivatives, CDS, 
to distressed debt, distressed credit, to convertible bonds, equity options, swaps. So it's basically selling anything funky that retail couldn't trade. And the way I, hmm. the way I described it later on to my buddies was like, you know, all that stuff that blew up the world in 2008, that's the stuff we were trading. I was the dealer. Now, yeah, well, I mean, look, I was I was a salesperson, so I, I wasn't actually, yeah. you know, I was holding their hands whilst they were blowing themselves up, basically. Yeah. But no, I'm being I'm being facetious. I'm being facetious. You know, these are all professional clients, professional investors. They knew what they were doing, but essentially, you know, it was a cross product asset sales role. And the really interesting thing about Japan at that time, so you, you think about Japan, I guess you think about the world now, right? And you, you obviously know about QE and zero interest rates worldwide. And it seems like it's a global phenomenon. What most people don't realize is that Japan has been in a zero interest rate environment since basically the mid 1990s. Yeah. So we've had QE since the crisis and Europe's had QE since 20, when, when did Draghi say whatever it takes? I don't know, five or six years. Japan's had zero rates for a generation. So if you think about what that's done to risk taking globally, or at least the, the kind of the credit environment, it's kind of interesting that Japan has not really evolved along those lines. Uh, it's really interesting that basically when, when I started my career in Japan, you, you notice this pattern over and over again with some of these troubled companies that we were trafficking in where basically they were crappy businesses. They built up a ton of leverage. They optically, they, you know, they were often in structurally screwed industries like consumer electronics, industrials or steels where they were getting, you know, secularly competed out by things like Chinese or Korean entrants, right? So there was a strong structural argument why they were kind of incapacitated, you know, typical zombie company type argument. And they had boatloads of leverage. And then all of a sudden you'd look at the bonds and the bonds or the bank debt or whatever, and it'd be trading at like 3% yield or 2% yield. Like there, there's a running joke in Japan that a distressed credit is one that trades wider than 5%. <laughs> it's, I mean, today yeah. it might be like 3%. So like, you know, Sharp, the uh, consumer electronics company? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. obviously a huge corporation. I mean, they make you know, TVs, kettles, fax machines. They make LCD screens. Actually, their main business is making the panels that go into TVs or was for a long time. So there was a very famous situation where one day the sharp bonds were trading at 95 cents on the dollar and the company was in deep distress. And then the very next day they were trading at 30 cents on the dollar. They literally fell 70 cents overnight. Which is very wow. strange when you think about a credit continuum, right? Normally, distress is priced gradually over time. But the, there's, there's a number of technical functions in the market where the Japanese credit market has, a, has evolved to a point where there's no high-yield market, right? There's, so there's investment-grade credit, and then there's, dis, there's distressed. So there's no natural buyer of a bond that yields 5%, 7%, 10%. There is a buyer of something trading at 25 cents on the dollar, and that's an offshore hedge fund looking for a recovery. Right, but there's no natural buyer of anything between four percent yield and forty percent yield, and so when Sharp actually hit the wall or almost hit the wall and got deleted from all these bond indices, the Nomura Bond Index or whatever, and it became completely unownable by domestics, by domestic fixed income, the bonds I was trading at the time literally they went from ninety cents to thirty cents. Wow! So it's pretty interesting. But um, look, I mean, I'm kind of waffling a little bit. What what I really wanted to say was. And this is kind of the key for, for kind of how I formed my, my kind of credit-based view or my credit-based equity view was that it doesn't matter the industry you looked at, whether it was airlines, consumer electronics, semiconductors, autos, auto parts, industrials, it doesn't matter. The pattern in Japan was always the same. And it was this, 
the business would get into trouble. Over time, it would deteriorate. It would steadily build up more and more leverage, and it would look horribly over-levered on a debt-to-EBITDA basis. So the debt-to-earnings looked horrible, but the debt-to-assets actually didn't look that bad. And because earnings for a lot of these companies was were structurally very low, the banks invariably looked at debt on an asset basis, right? So the banks would carry these companies for years and years and years, and that bred a huge amount of complacency in the equity market as well as the fixed income market. So all the sell side analysts would publish these notes on these crappy industrial companies with like seven, eight, nine turns of leverage saying, ah, it's fine. The banks will just roll. And of course, the banks did roll for a number of years until they didn't. And what happened when the banks didn't roll was really interesting was because there was so much excess liquidity in the market and there'd be so much complacency built up that a lot of these companies, invariably, they still had solid market caps. So they still had decent equity cushions. So basically what would happen is the banks would say, okay, we don't care that you're seven times levered, eight times levered, nine times levered on a debt to EBITDA basis. But when you go below 20% equity ratio, right? When your equity to your total assets falls below certain thresholds, that's when we get worried. Because the lesson for the banks from the crisis was if they weren't confident on the asset value, they could take big losses. Didn't really matter what the run rate earnings were. So what that meant is if you're a solid market participant, if you're an active market participant, you could just keep a watch list of these companies. And as soon as debt to assets or equity ratio, so as soon as equity ratio fell below 20%, it meant a huge equity offering was almost inevitable. And if equity ratio got below 10% or in the 10 to 15% range, it meant a hugely dilutive equity offering. Often an equity kneecapping type offering was coming down the pike. And once you recognize that pattern, that that was the way the Japanese banks operated, you could place your bets accordingly. And so that's kind of what a transition to the buy side but essentially that's what we did. We just looked for these companies over and over across industries. Sharp did it like two or three times. Hitachi did it a couple of times. Panasonic did it once or twice. Toshiba, Toshiba did it two or three times. There was fraud involved as well. That was my first massive win as a kind of as a private investor was being short a bunch of Toshiba. Um, they had I an mean, huh. idiosyncratic story, but they had huge issues. Japan Display, another, another you know LCD company. Pioneer, the electronics company, two or three times. Nippon Sheet Glass, Nissan did it as well. The list goes on. I mean, there's a few. Mazda, the car manufacturer. I mean, literally ANA, the airline. Basically, every large-scale, mid-scale Japanese corporation that went through kind of this distress, went through this similar cycle where they built up too much leverage. That leverage was never resolved in the courts. It never actually made its way to bankruptcy for a formal restructuring. Instead, the excess liquidity provided by years of QE allowed for a a so-called out-of-court restructuring. The equity market was the ATM through which the balance sheet was cleansed at the behest of the banks, which taught me that one, credit analysis is still very important. No one's doing it because of decades of QE. So you have an edge in doing it, but you don't apply it in the bond market because the bond market is not, the bond market is not where, is not the lever through which the consequences are applied for cultural reasons or technical reasons. The lever is actually the equity market. So you apply the credit analyst learnings to the stock market, and that's where you can really generate alpha. And so that was a realization that took a number of years and overwhelmingly on the short side, as you, as you probably you know are aware, most credit guys tend to be more skeptical, tend to be more kind of negative, let's say tend to be more worried about downside. And so they gravitate more towards shorts. And I, and I also did initially, but every now and then there are opportunities on the long side as well, right? So like Japan Airlines, one of the few companies that actually did get formally restructured during this time, it actually did go bankrupt. 
it was kind of a landmark transaction, but because the stink on the bankruptcy was so huge, when it came back to the market, it came back with a clean balance sheet, no debt, net cash, restructured routes, restructured costs, completely different OPEX kind of build. And it came back at two times three cash flow. No one wanted to buy it because it had gone bankrupt. So that was like the long implementation of this credit-based view, right? Was to get long stuff like that and to short the Sharps and the, the Toshibas of the world when they had this balance sheet issue that was had to be resolved through the stock market. That's kind of uh, when you ask about my, my training, it's kind of like on the job, obviously, but that's kind of what I learned in Japan. Dude, that's wild. Like that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting insight. Do you think that that's going to go to the rest of the world? Like is, do you think that that will transfer or do you think that that's a well, unique, yeah. you know, sort of Japan specific, like cultural, like what do you attribute that to? If you'd asked me this 12 months ago, or maybe, maybe 18 months ago, I would have said yes, definitely. Because my whole angle for trying to launch my fund was this idea that credit-based equity investing was once only relevant to like a place like Japan, where you had like this long-term engendering of QE and how that causes complacency in the markets. But yet over time, this is still resolved in equities through this kind of mechanism I described. And my contention was over time that would spread to other markets like Europe and eventually the US because these other markets are becoming more and more Japanized, right? From an interest rate perspective. However, sitting back and looking at it today, I'm not sure that's entirely, I mean, definitely in places like Europe, Okay, so Europe has developed market. Europe has some of these kind of behavioral ticks that you have evidence in Japan. You see less relevance of the bond market versus the bank lending market on the fixed income side, more power in the banking syndicates and the banking groups with regard to how companies get structured and restructured, and a general much lower tolerance for asset based leverage, let's say, than the US. The US, I would have thought it would go more in this direction, but post crisis. It's hard to it's hard to maintain that belief. Post crisis meaning post corona. Sorry. Yeah. Well, why do you just say because that? so many. Ju- I mean, like, look at the cruise lines. Look at look at the airlines. Look at all these levered, incapacitated, kneecapped businesses that will very hard to see them ever generating meaningful free cash, or at least to to justify the enterprise values or the debt loads they're carrying now. Trade where they are. Like the equity market is completely bailed out. A lot of these companies, well and truly, in advance when they should have. So I think it goes back to the market participants, right? The US is just such a unique market in terms of who's participating in the market. Obviously, you have this retail frenzy going on now that that no one could have foreseen. Japan, the vast majority of common people, you know, common Japanese don't trade stocks. They don't trade stocks for a very good reason. Stocks didn't go up for 30 years. That's why they all own JGBs. That's why they all own bonds which meant that valuations stayed lower, which meant that when you actually had these credit-based shorting catalysts, they actually worked because stocks actually went down when you had these massive dilutive events. Whereas last 12 months in the US, maybe it's temporary, maybe it's not, but that clearly hasn't been the case. Like the more they dilute, the more RCL, the more CCL goes up. (laughs) So look, I'm not trying to be too short-termist, but you know, I have to be a realist. I think the the lessons from my Japan experience are more slightly more general. I mean, obviously they apply still to Japan, and as I said, somewhat to Europe. And I've had some success in Europe, but I think the lessons are more kind of general education type lessons in how to approach balance sheet analysis and how to try to value companies than saying, okay, you know that happened in Japan. Now the U.S. looks like Japan because interest rates were also zero. Therefore, credit conditions are exactly the same. I think that's unfortunately for me because it means I've 
less less applicable kind of skill set in the US, but it's probably not as uh, relevant. Yeah, I don't I mean, you know, I guess I'm talking my own book in that I hope that your skill set is relevant in the US. As I said, I mean, I think that most of my decent sized wins, if I really look through a, a lot of what has gone well, a lot of it's been a debt first sort of analysis. So I don't know. I th- I think maybe the difference is in Japan, you had to be focused to the upside or to the downside, and maybe the U.S. If you look at the upside, yeah, maybe that's kind of the the wrinkle because maybe management teams are more willing to exploit debt packages, or market participants are more willing to bid something here. I'm not really sure, but I do think that the marriage of the two concepts makes sense, and I don't hear a lot of equity guys do it. And to my credit friends that helped me, thank you very much because I am just good enough to miss a covenant at the wrong time. And thankfully I can lean on some smarter people than myself at times. So that's what the network's dude, for. That what that's what the network's for. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How do you screen all this stuff? Like how are you sitting in Japan finding a dark air Wisconsin idea? Like how the hell does that happen? So Air Wisconsin was just on someone's blog and someone tweeted it at me or DM'd me. So look, the the vast majority of ideas these days come from two sources, okay? And often they're overlapping. The the first source is kind of the organic, what I call the organic source. And that is new ideas grow out of old ideas, as you well know, right? If you invest in Transdime, then you could potentially invest in Heiko. If you invest in Heiko, you could potentially invest in Aircap. If you invest in Aircap, you could invest in Delta. If you invest in Delta, you could invest in Sun Country. You know what I mean? So there's this continually building on your accumulation of knowledge over many years. And frankly, at any given time, at least 70%, more like 80% of my capital will be deployed in ideas that are first or second derivative of work I've done for many years. So I'm never really looking to throw dollars. The, the bar for me to invest money in totally novel industries or situations is incredibly high. It's incredibly high. Invariably, it's going to be related to something I've invested in for many years, either a supply chain related, adjacent industry, whatever, right? Or different geography, right? A steel company in Japan is a steel company in Poland is a steel company in the US with wrinkles, right? I mean, steel is a global commodity business. So it's pretty straightforward. So that's, that's kind of the organic bucket. And the inorganic bucket is everything else. And overwhelmingly these days, it's reverse inquiry frankly it's people throwing their best idea at me saying have you looked at that have you looked at this and then it's just a matter of trying to kill it as quickly as possible i literally am like it's like a shooting gallery up there i'm trying to assess someone's going to throw at me and they're going to and so if anyone comes at me and says we should look at this and i come back i'm really critical it's never a personal critique and it's never it's literally a time management tool the biggest attractor for me is spending time on something that doesn't go anywhere and so i have to try and filter things extremely quickly and so the process to do that is just to find things very quickly that are red lines and i cannot cross them in a given investment whether that be something about the balance sheet whether that be something about the analysis so i always say people ask me all the time how do you kind of approach this company or how do you start looking at something and I'm like listen if if at any point in the first 30 minutes something just makes your head spin and you can't get your head around it or you don't think you could get yourself in a position to get your head around it just move on to the next one. It's just a a core competency issue, whatever it is. So dude, I I would just never look at biotech. I'll never look at pharma. I'll never look at insurance. I just won't do it. It's too complex. 
don't care how juicy it is. Don't care how potentially attractive it is. I'll just never be comfortable. So that obviously there's three or four sectors like that. Very rarely, if ever, will I look at luxury goods. Basically, if the intangible value of the business is very, very high relative to the total value of the business. So anything branded, right? Is this, for me personally, the bar is just a huge amount higher because I'm a, I'm a hard asset guy, right? I'm a, I'm a balance sheet, tangible asset guy. So that's kind of why I got into it with Chamath once when he started talking about how, you know, intangibles are undervalued on the balance sheet. And I was like, bro, what are you talking about? And then he blocked me. <laughs> uh, what a clown. Well, that congratulations clown. on that. Oh my God. <laughs> congratulations on that. There are worse Man. things in the world. Dude, I love your, I love your rant on Chamath. Like, the other like last month or whenever after GameStop, the guy's such a Ponzi scheme. Uh, look, maybe you have to you have to watch your words. I don't. I can't believe that guy hasn't been investigated by the SEC yet, frankly. But you know, we don't have to. Yeah, we I, don't have to go there if if you. No, I I just think if you're going to sponsor a bunch of spacs, arguing that you're trading options to learn on a on a a situation that is like clearly a market structure issue and then you're going to cheer on the little guy when you have a million followers like i just said just doesn't sit right with me man the other thing that pisses me Me off is like how much money is enough money like what you're gonna like why why gamestop calls like why do you have to be involved and i think the reason is you have to be involved if you're playing the game he's playing or at least my perception of the game he's playing you have to be in the middle of stories because a lot of it is like being at the center of everything but like that's just not my shit man i that's not who i am and it that stuff bothers me especially when i think the normal people can get hurt like i am a retail investor i might be a sophisticated one but i'm not at some fucking hedge fund you know so i have a my mom i love my mom but mom if you listen to this shit you call me all the time with crazy ass investment ideas that end up in your email box so that's just real talk and like i i could see her getting caught up in that stuff that really upsets me totally i guarantee you 90 percent of his followers are a lot less sophisticated than than not just you but probably your mom and they all got hurt by that and to your point about why is he actually doing it you have to be at the center of these stories I think it may even be more banal than that, man. It might just be, it's a power thing. Like, why is Elon Musk tweeting about GameStop? It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a power trip. It's like, look what I, why did Elon Musk tweet this 420 takeover offer? The fake t- takeover thing, remember a few years ago? Yeah, oh yeah. Because he was having an argument with, with his girlfriend's friend, right? Azalea Banks. He was having an argument and he basically said, look, I can, I mean, this is in some court filing, right? He basically boasted that he could get the market to move based on his based on his tweet or some, something crazy like this. It was all an ego thing. So I think, I think for the likes of, you know, there is a business rationale for the chamas of the world to kind of marshal his retail flock into the next SPAC, which is sad. And, and as you said, is, is dangerous, but more than that, it's, I mean, it's just a massive ego trip for these guys. Like you said, it's sad, right? They have something of a responsibility, if not a very large responsibility, to shepherd their flock more responsibly than that, at the very least, if not a moral obligation to kind of do the right thing. But but that aside, you know, it's just, I'm not sure what gets me more, the actual behavior or the fact that CNBC has him on TV and thinks that he actually knows what he's talking about. 
I mean, the guy's a snake oil salesman. That's all he is. But I don't know. What what do I know? What do I know? I'm just uh, you know, just another guy up. I'm going to be slightly more measured in how I frame this, but what I will say <laughs> sure, is, sure, sure, you know. I'm like a tiny little Twitter account, right, relative to him. And like, I feel immense responsibility, even if I was messing around with the GameStop stuff, which I did try to sell a call spread. But, you know, that was like out to June. And I I don't know whether or not that would have worked. But I would never fucking to announce that in the middle of that frenzy and to like to have people think that you're participating in that and to like tell them that it's this little man versus the big hedge fund, which I'm not even convinced any of that stuff's true. Like there was a lot of money that was traded that week and I'm not it's sure not it true. wasn't just like it's market structure stuff. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't believe it. Yeah. So all of it, man, it, it just goes it's back okay. to it's how okay much though, is dude. He, 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 dude, he, it's okay. He donated all of it to charity. So it's all good, bro. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, that's that's the thing, like, forget about, it's not even how much is enough money, how much is enough money, how much is enough attention, how much is enough power, like, how fucking greedy do we have to be here? Like, just let it go. It's not that hard to let some stuff go. Yeah, but, but it, I mean, look, why, why did Bill Huang, who was worth 200 million seven years ago and was worth 5 billion three weeks ago, why was he gunning for 15 billion? Why it, it's always you know the, the, how many boats can you water ski behind? It's always the same. There's no, it's always a what's that that squiggle that infinity symbol that you know the infinity number. It's always the ineluctable chase for more and more and more. It's human nature, right? So whether it's Bill Huang or Chamath or Elon, whoever it is, right? Like sorry, and by the way, I don't mean to equate Bill with Chamath. I think it's a completely different situation and more defensible in some ways frankly i mean someone who got overextended and lost control and was obviously far too levered but i'm not suggesting anything immoral necessarily that's not what i'm trying to suggest but yes to answer your question how much is enough it's never enough it's never never going to be enough for some people unfortunately yeah i don't know man i just don't have that in me and maybe that makes me a sucker right maybe they look at me and they're like this guy doesn't you know he doesn't have it in him to rule well guess what i fucking don't i'm just trying to I'm just trying to live a happy life and I appreciate the people that listen to me. I appreciate the people that tune in and uh, you know, if I ever mess up, it's an honest mistake. I'm not, I'm not trying to exploit anything. So on that note, man, I know that your headphones are starting to die and I want to extend, I've I've had (laughs) such a good time talking to you. So if you ever want to come back, you just let me know, man. man, ping me evergreen. Definitely. Definitely. No, I appreciate that. And we'll have to get you hooked up for the site. And yes, get you please. involved in Air Wisconsin and all the other dodgy small cap stuff. That, <laughs> honestly, I, read honestly, I stuff, think it's man. far like too it. a lot of this. Yeah, 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 for sure. We'll, we'll make it happen. But I think a lot of it's fairly small, right? You, you tend to, to traffic in much more liquid stuff. And I mean, look, yeah. I try to go as liquid as possible. But if something trades a few million a day, that's that's more than enough for me, right? So I'm not mad. Yeah, I mean, from an intellectual perspective. Oh, okay, okay, cool, cool. Well, in that case. Come on in, the water's warm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, take care of yourself. It's been a Thanks pleasure, for doing man. This. Definitely. Thanks for having me. Speak soon.